Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Klott, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our producers, Adam Kamara and Alex Brooklyn at Racket Media. And our guest for this special edition, the author of the new memoir, Self-Portrait in Black and White, Thomas Chatterton Williams. I, of course, am the slumming angel, the knocker-off of tall hats, the omni-American, as it were, <laughs> Jake Siegel. Thomas, thanks for being here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thank you. So um, when uh, we asked you to come on, um, uh, you, you, you said you'd like to do the Omni-Americans, and uh, uh, we'd sort of thrown around a couple ideas. What is it about this book that, uh, that made you want to talk about it? Well, a couple of things. I've considered basically for the past 10 years or so that part of my any mission I have as a writer is to try to bring as many people as I can possibly reach to uh, Albert Murray, who I think is a real, genuine American original genius. Um, I think that it's a almost a crime how um, under-referenced he goes in, the, in, in, in these debates that we have uh, in the 21st century about race and American identity, uh, which he's contributed some of the finest ideas to, but uh, which are not cited. Um, and I've, I was teaching, I'm, I'm a visiting fellow at uh, the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard this semester, and I was teaching it to some students. And when, when we started talking about what other works we could talk about, I thought there was maybe nothing that would uh, be more appropriate to some of the things I'm trying to do in my book uh, than Murray's Omni-Americans, which was a real source of inspiration and, and is something I try to reference in the book, too. And this is, this is formative for you, too, Jake, right? Yeah. Uh, Albert Murray was, uh, you know, I was very pleased when Thomas selected this book. Murray was a, a real deep and early influence on me in my thinking about not only race, but my thinking about America and identity in the broadest possible sense. And it, it's interesting, we'll get into this later, but one of the things I had occasion to reflect on as I was rereading the Omni-Americans and reading Thomas's uh, truly excellent new memoir is why it was so important to me, especially at the age it was so important to me, which was fairly young as an adolescent. How, how did you uh, come across it first? Through Stanley Crouch. Okay. So uh, I had a, a brief sort of apprenticeship, very brief sort of apprenticeship to Stanley Crouch when I was about, I guess started when I was 16 and went until I was 17. Crouch, um, for those who know, they know. For those who don't know, Crouch is a, <laughs> a great eccentric uh, man of letters, American man of letters, um, author of a, a really good collection of essays called Notes of a Hanging Judge. He was a really started off as a jazz critic, started off as a jazz, jazz drummer, drummer <laughs> which he always downplayed, though. But he um, was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but he, and people who knew him will tell you that he was good, but Crouch himself always kind of downplayed his own musical mm -hmm. abilities. And from that, and had like a sort of 
Crouch had a kind of moment as a black nationalist in L.A. in the 70s. And walked into Pomona, I believe, without a B.A. and became a tenured track professor. That's right. That's right. And uh, then developed what can only be called a highly original uh, sensibility and view of America that was also at the same time quite indebted. People will say to Murray and Ellison, but I think really most of all to Murray, actually, I think. Uh, and a bit of Bellow, too. And, and certainly a bit of Bellow, too. And well, Murray and Ellison, it's interesting because I'd just been on a kind of Ellison kick and yeah. reading this after reading through Ellison's essays and Invisible Man, like it's very clear <clears throat> Murray and Ellison were friends. They met at Tuskegee, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's clear that you have two brilliant minds who are very much – uh, you know, constantly trading ideas. They're 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 touching on a lot of the same reference points. Um, they're clearly trading books uh, and influencing trading twelves, as it were. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is the name of the collection um, of uh, correspondence between the two of them. Yeah. But I got to crouch because I read Invisible Man as a school assignment when I was fifteen, and it was the first novel. Um, it was the greatest novel I'd ever read at that point yeah. and uh, sort of loom, has loomed large in my life ever since. As a brief digression, I realized in my late 30s that the books that meant the most to me as an adolescent, which were Invisible Man and uh, Smattering of Titles by Dead Russians, are mm-hmm. the best. I, <laughs> my taste at 16 was actually – The best. <laughs> yeah. was the best. Like, Your taste at 16 was my taste at 19, 20, 21, but it is still the best. I had an older brother and so, you know, so I had like help getting there a little earlier. But actually, you know, Ellison, Murray, Dostoevsky, like that's – that is it. Some guy guy called Tolstoy. Right, right, right. You wander away but then you come back and that's still it. But yeah, I'd read Invisible Man. That in turn I think sort of led me to crouch because I – knew of his reputation as an Ellison guy, which led me to Murray. And so the Omni-Americans, I believe it's published in 1969 originally. Uh, 70. 70. 70 yeah. And would it be fair to say it's the first major work uh, that Murray publishes Absolutely. that establishes his reputation. He didn't He didn't publish for a long time. And what was the age that he first? 46 years old when he started freelancing in earnest. Yeah. After he had a solid pension from the Air Force. That's right. So he was uh, – a career military man by choice after having – you know, he's a highly educated career military man who – Officer, yeah. Yeah, was an officer, retired as a major. But um, he – you know, he had an incredible life that we won't get into too much now only because there's so much in this one essay. But how would you characterize broadly the Omni-Americans? How would you describe it to somebody who doesn't know anything about it? It's one of those books, probably one of the reasons why Murray uh, doesn't snap the way Baldwin or some others do in the contemporary discourse is because he's kind of untweetable. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a book that really must be read in its entirety. There are so many like cul-de-sacs and caveats and you know ideas and sentences wrapped back around uh, themselves and are really kind of subtle. Uh, and I, I don't think it's easy to sum up in one statement, but I think that what I take away from it is that America is fundamentally a mongrel society and culture and that uh, African-Americans are fundamentally um, native and modern people that embody all of the the, the, the major 
uh, strains of American identity within themselves. So Murray would emphasize you've got the backwoodsman on the frontier, you've got the Yankee, you've got the Native American, and you've got the African um, slave. Uh, and the African American actually, both genetically and culturally, has all of that from the beginning and is one of the oldest, other than the Native American, is one of the oldest uh, inhabitants of this land. Um, and so he's got that kind of idea flowing through. Mm -hmm. Plus, uh, there's this emphasis on the, the philosophy and the equipment for living that the African-American brought into the world, um, which is also an old equipment for living, which is a kind of blues stoicism, uh, this blues um, aesthetic or idiom. It's not stoicism. You keep calling it blues stoicism. The blues is like is anti-stoic. Like, um, like if you ask a stoic – how things are going, they're going to be like, you know, I'm contemplating the logos, right? <laughs> like, if you ask a blues musician how things are going, they're going to be like, I sent for you yesterday, yet you came today. My baby left me. I was born under a bad sign. There's a hellhound on my trail. Like, things are bad, right? Yeah. But it is... But you play the hand you're dealt. But you play the hand you're dealt. Uh -huh. um, you make you laugh at the hand you're dealt. You, you laugh even laugh at the hand you're dealt. Yeah. into style, yeah. right? And so... You're saying stoicism is a bit more boring. <laughs> Sto Sto stoicism is, is like opposed to the passions. And I feel mm -hmm. like the blues is so much about mm -hmm. the, 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 the passion. And, and um, you know, one of the things that, that you know, so, so there's this central concern with identity in this book. And he, he – he, but he, he doesn't begin – right off talking about, you know, he said, you know, American is part Yankee, part backwoodsman and Indian and part Negro, right? Mm -hmm. And it's funny too, because that's like an old conception of America, right? But like the old conception was like, um, like Crevcore in the 18th century, like, you know, what is the American, this new man? He's either a European or the descendant of a European, hence that strange mixture of blood, which you will find in no other country, you know? <laughs> and like to him, it's like crazy. It's like, they got Dutch people and mixing with, French people. With mixing right, with French right. people. Which, yeah. By the way, that is still operative in ways, you know, I was in um, uh, Norway and I met this Norwegian journalist who was like, you Americans, you're so obsessed with race. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And he goes, you know, it's not like that here. For example, I'm half Finnish, but nobody ever gives me any trouble. <laughs> and I was like, oh, half Finnish, disgusting, you know? Like, this, this mongrel version of two types how, how of did Scandinavian. You take, how, did you, how did the families deal with this? Yeah. Let me give you an image for the mongrel for a second. And Thomas, maybe you can recall whether this comes from Murray or Crouch, because I think I've spoken about Murray on this podcast a number of times before, and I believe I have attributed this to Murray, but it might actually be Crouch. But the image is Davy Crockett. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the character who's part frontiersman, part American Indian, part Negro in the parlance that uh, Murray's using. Yeah, Murray and Crouch didn't use African American or yeah. even black. They used Negro. Crouch even more yeah. deliberately yeah. Than, yeah. than Murray. Murray uh, was of the time when that was coming. Right. Yeah. But if you think about that particular composite character, one of the two of them says that the embodiment of this is Davy Crockett. Because if you think of Davy Crockett, the frontiersman aspect is obvious, right? Mm -hmm. he, Davy Crockett would appear to be a white backwoodsman kind of uh, pioneer scout type. But then either Murray Crouch, let's just call them a composite figure, Murray hyphen Crouch, says that if you look at the way he stands – with his hip cocked to the side. I think right? this is Murray. 
Is this Murray? I think, it is I, Murray. I think it's in this book yeah, somewhere. It, it blurs together at some point for me. But the way Crockett stands is a black stance or Negro stance, he would say. But that the the actual like angle of his hip, <laughs> in the in the sense of like the style of living, mm-hmm. right? And I, you you think of this for a second. You say, well. The way he stands isn't that natural. No, there's nothing natural about it. Go to other parts of the world. They don't stand Absolutely. the same way Americans stand. I it's- live in France, and that's one of the main ways you can tell who's an African from who's an African-American or black American. Right. You don't cut through the air in the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's – and it's in the purest sense, the style of living, right? And so the way the hip is cocked to the side, Davy Crockett's hip is cocked to the side, is the black element. The coonskin hat is the American Indian element. And you look at Davy Crockett and you receive Davy Crockett as a kid, let's say, and you think like this is a white guy, right? <laughs> this is an old pioneer white guy. But no, he's not white at all. You know, he's American. He's American, yeah. With everything that entails. So I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off, but I think that that image – you know, sort of crystallizes it's fundamental. It. Yeah, it's fundamental. He has uh, hyper-original kind of ways of – hyper-specific original images of kind of trying to emphasize what the American uh, mythos is, you know, that you don't find in other writers. And I think that some of that is probably why he's also difficult to bring into Absolutely. Like contemporary he, it's conversation. It's so hyper-specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've read this book a dozen times. <laughs> And I misremember elements of it. Of course, it. because it's, 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 it's so it doesn't particular. overlap with anything right. else other it's than so maybe crafts or a little bit of else. <laughs> right. These guys are, are really, really specific to themselves. Yeah. And where your mind fills in gaps, you're probably wrong. Right. You know? <laughs> right, right. More so than with other writers. Yeah. Right. So there's the composite American identity, but there's also – he frames it from the outset as like this distinction between a view of man – that you get from the social science technicians versus a kind of more literary sensibility, right? And he is very opposed to the social science technicians, right? And he says, interpretations of human behavior in the raw require at least as much respect for the complexity of human motives as the interpretation of a poem or play or a story. And that sort of sense of like the view of man that you would get from a particular method of social science or a method of social science that is divorced from a literary sensibility because it's not that he thinks that social science is all bad um, is uh, – and this is actually – it's interesting. You, you mentioned like Ellison and the Russians and you know this aspect of me feels very much in concert with like the underground man um, railing against the Crystal Palace, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of – you know like – Metaphysic of technology yeah, yeah. that Ernst Jung talks and about. Positivist yeah. sociology right. that Dostoevsky is rejecting. Where you reduce an individual to, you know. Even to strictly m- rational sources. Yeah. yeah, to rational sources, to that which can be quantified. And also, you know, one of his complaints is that, like, you know, if you're looking at the sorts of measures that social scientists look at, sort of wealth, um, uh, success within a particular type of education that he doesn't necessarily correspond to. Whether children are born within or without of wedlock. I right, mean, that's that a huge too. part of mm-hmm. this essay. And and to him, that loses a lot of what is actually interesting about a cultural tradition. And right? it leaves no space for heroism, which is a major uh, point mm-hmm. of emphasis for him, the heroic ideal, the heroic image, uh, the idea of... Um, 
cooperative antagonism that makes, you know, you can't have a dragon slayer without a dragon and that adversity creates kind of character. Yeah. And that's what makes him distinct. I mean, it's the combination. I think we've just hit on perhaps the two most essential elements in the broad sense. There, there's one more. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. <laughs> which is um, – so there's American identity as a com- composite identity. Yeah. There's that sort of literary sensibility versus his social science. And then there's his notion of art as a conception of life mm-hmm. and what you – what and, – and he's specifically talking about the blues, blues tradition and, and what emerges from it and what that reveals about a people and a culture that can't be captured by these other things. Yeah, it's uh, – right. It's, okay, it's revealing the people's uh, – the cultural idiom of the people. Yeah. Uh, he keeps coming back to that. But the cultural idiom of the people has a – has to strive for the heroic for him right. to, to have dignity. And so it's interesting. He has uh, – one of the times I've brought up Murray on this podcast before is when we did a Baldwin essay. Mm-hmm. And I quoted Murray's criticisms of Baldwin here. But if you go back to Baldwin and uh, everybody's protest novel – you know, Baldwin also is saying some surface, of the same thing. Is saying some of the same things. Oh, it's also antagonistic towards a reductive social science view of life. But the critical distinction between them, I think, and this actually sort of plays on the distinction between Stoicism and Phil's version of the blues that you were getting at before, is that where Thomas is saying that it's stoical, I think the critical thing that he's pointing at is that all important for Murray is that the blues rejects despair. Yeah. And so if you think about like yeah. how people the the common understanding of the blues, let's say in the kind of flattened American idiom which is a misunderstanding, it's all about wallowing in despair. Mm-hmm. It's some guy groaning into his ah oh, my 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 lady, my lady left, left me, me <laughs> you yeah. know whatever, but Murray's whole point and i actually believe that murray's greatest work and if i could only recommend one to people it would be this one is stomping the blues oh yeah it's all about the forging of a heroic individual uh meaning uh very much sort of in the 20th century existential mode actually out of the makings of abjection and misery but he is at his core an anti-miserabilist and right. anti uh anti-abjection and 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 all you have to do to know that that's true about the blues is to play it right <laughs> like listen to like count basie's sent for you yesterday right sent for you yesterday and here you come today Sent for you yesterday, and here you come today. You can't love me, baby, and treat me that way. It it's it can't be reconciled with the view that that's about sort of despair and objection, right? Even though you know what is being recounted is, um, you know, bad in some sense, right? Um, there's a there's a bit that I want to read from the Omni-Americans is from the very beginning where he's explaining his project. 
And he says, the Omni-Americans is based in large measure on the assumption that since the negative aspects of black experience are constantly being over-publicized and to little purpose except to obscure the positive, justice to U.S. Negroes, not only as American citizens but also as the fascinating human beings that they so obviously are, is best served by suggesting some of the affirmative implications of their history and culture. After all, someone must at least begin to try to do justice to what U.S. Negroes like about being black and to what they like about being Americans. Otherwise, justice can hardly be be done to the incontestable fact that not only do they choose to live rather than commit suicide, but that poverty and injustice notwithstanding, far from simply struggling in despair, they live with gusto and a sense of elegance that has always been downright enviable. Yeah, I think that... That's phenomenal. And, and that kind of – when I was teaching this to the students, at first they were wondering if Murray's a conservative, but they, they, they had a problem <laughs> making him a conservative because he doesn't come across as a self-hating black man. And anyway, right. he's obviously so proud to be black. But the image that and, sticks – And in fact, he is much more – he's much more interested in celebrating black culture mm-hmm. than a lot of people who – in the sort of contemporary discourse, easily slot into... That's absolutely right. You know, who, liberal... who kind of really, really um, um, do agree with critics of blackness that there's something um, bad or sorrowful or, or fundamentally broken about being black that, mm-hmm. that is always... I think he rejected the brokenness. What The, the image that I love um, is his... I don't remember where this appeared. I read like all of Murray's books for a long piece I did on him in The Nation a few years ago. But this image of a jazz man standing by himself doing a solo, blowing into his into his wind instrument by himself, improvising and, and holding just by his own will an element of, cha- of, of order uh, and form against chaos. Mm. And actually what I like about also with that is that Murray doesn't just think this is a black thing. I mean, he calls his favorite book, uh, The Sun Also Rises, he calls it Jake's Empty Bed mm. Blues. And he, he sees the, uh, the image of the matador as being very much like the jasmine holding, standing there, with form and with style and g- dignity and grace against the bull, which is just absolute chaos and destruction coming at him. And, 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 and for a spell, um, succeeding and holding it at bay and, and even, and even outsmarting it, outwitting it. Um, that nation essay was, uh, fantastic. And I said as much at the time, you're welcome. Uh, what, uh, remind me of that title, please. A blues for Albert Murray. Blues for Albert Murray, which is, you know, perfect title um but i remember the one objection i i had to it was and this is idiosyncratic obviously but i think there's a word for what murray is doing here and that what ellison was doing also and not that you were guilty of this but too often people who write about murray focus on him as like a race man in a pure sense but if you think about that image of the blues man uh, making order out of chaos. And if you think about Murray's approach to the protean, to borrow a word from Crouch, the protean formation of meaning and identity, it's modernism. It's American oh, absolutely. modernism. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I, I, but, but Murray would say there's no, nothing more modern than the American Negro. Right. Or, I know. I know. And I, I only stick on this because for two reasons, one, I'm relentlessly critical of modernism on this podcast in particular for reasons I don't fully understand. (laughs) (laughs) But because I think in the European molds too often it shades into uh, sort of uh, love of uh, absolutism. Um, You know, it's like too many of the modernists end up as fascists or Stalinists (laughs) for my taste, right? 
though I admire much. No, uh, many of them are anti-fascists as well. Not not as many as you might hope, actually. <laughs> and it's like, and it's interesting which, and this is why I think it's important to say that Murray was a modernist, not just because he was into Malraux and like him and Ellison both cited man's fate as one mm-hmm. of the, the sort of great uh, Oh yeah, the, I've never heard anyone else cite Malraux even living in 10 years in France as much as it's, when it, you read uh, Ellison or Murray the two essay. Of them, right. it's, and it's, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, and it's man's fate in particular. Yeah, yeah which like makes perfect sense. But the reason why it's important is because it's a form of modernism and there aren't that many, you know, there are varieties of modernism, but it's one of the varieties of modernism, which is constitutionally incapable of giving in to the kind of fascist or Stalinist temptation. And it's worth examining why that is in part because it loves freedom, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as much as it loves meaning, it sees freedom as in true human freedom as indispensable to to the creation of meaning and like where you know joyce ends up rejecting fascism in part and i, I borrow this from something irving howe wrote but i came to understand that maybe joyce rejects it he doesn't give in to that modernist temptation because he's chaste in a way he abstains from history in a way he keeps himself sort of removed and you know, he's uh, something almost monkish about it. You know, Murray, it's the opposite. He's too deep into the grain of life. And maybe this is an esoteric rift to go on, but I feel that it's important, not just in the understanding of Murray, but also, you know, we're still sort of wrestling with the legacy of modernism in terms of art and our understanding of what it means to be alive in a kind of post-industrial information society. And Here's an example, a a real living American example of something that couldn't be any less conservative, right? Mm -hmm. It's purely – it's wildly generative Mm -hmm. and how and why that came together and what it means in aesthetic terms is – And and he associates it with the essential American character, right? Which he says is – and he quotes like Constant Rourke talking about about, – the how like the sort of American types that she discusses emerge out of revolt, right? Um, and uh, you know she says the the Yankee in the initial revolt against the parent civilization, the backs, backwoodsman in revolt against all civilization, <laughs> the Negro in revolt, which in revolt which was cryptic and submerged, but with none nonetheless made a perceptible outline, and then. Uh, uh, he, he refers to their mood of disseverance, carrying the popular fancy further and further from any fixed or traditional heritage. Their comedy, their irreverent wisdom, their sudden changes and adroit adaptations provided emblems for a pioneer people who acquired resilience as a prime trait. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's revolt and comedy, which Ellison was really mm-hmm. like found really important. I actually think I don't think you can dissever the importance of Invisible Man from its humor, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's sort of it's irreverent sensibility is really important for for how that novel works. Um and and that's not just a sort of attachment to certain aspects of modernism that go along with that, but it is it emerges out of his sense of uh himself as an American, as somebody who emerges from a culture of revolt and believes in democracy and freedom. Let me read a quote from uh, Thomas's Nation essay that I think captures a lot of this um, very well. 
So he's writing about sort of he, you, Thomas, are <laughs> writing about the reception uh, that Murray got and why he was troubling to some people and, and he sort of presents some of what was troubling about him. And then you write, on the other hand, champion for genuine black equality that he was, it would not be inaccurate at all to classify Murray like Ellison, but without any of the latter's personal frigidity or mean-spiritedness as a genuine elitist. He really did believe that some things were better, more significant than others, and that learning not only to make distinctions, but also to be distinctive was of the utmost existential importance. He wanted black people to transcend our oppression, to become heroic. This is the highest possible standard, a daunting order for any group to be sure, and far beyond the twice-as-good dictum that Murray likely heard from his elders and that has come in for such a drubbing on social media today. But Murray's thinking had nothing to do with the performance of any watered-down, middle-class respectability politics for the pleasure of some all-seeing white gaze. On the contrary, he wanted to open the minds of black Americans with his writing and his advocacy to their own ever-present greatness, a greatness they might otherwise ignore, but that he saw as evident all around them, first in the sheer and improbable feat of their survival, and second in the accompanying and eventually culturally dominant artistic expression their ancestors had discovered. He called it the blues idiom statement which is to say the specific texture of existence in a given place, time, and circumstance processed into artistic statement, stylized into significance. I think that, you know, very powerfully and succinctly captures so much of uh, what's going on in Murray and the elitism is part of what This is why he's considered conservative. Right. And also, you know, these guys were culturally conservative. Murray... Crouch, Ellison, Marsalis, mm. they think that uh, jazz is fundamentally dance music. And, and so, blues. And blues. Yeah. And so <clears throat> they actually, they stop around Duke Ellington. And, you know, Crouch hated Miles Davis and stuff like this. You know, so, so this is actually, uh, this is a form of what people think of as being conservative. Well, he, like, the distinction I think Crouch would make that he borrows certainly comes directly from Murray is that he hates Miles Davis. Miles when Davis. he went electric, when he went electric, actually, I think it starts when he went West coast, mm-hmm. right? Which is when he, when he stops playing in a blues scale, basically mm-hmm. like, because you see that there, you know, Murray praises Ornette Coleman at times and they're not opposed to experimentation, but they think that when jazz abandons its grounding in the blues right. as when blues abandons its grounding in a stomping dance music that it becomes something denatured um it no longer swings it no longer <laughs> swings and the swing is like how do you put it i don't want to say authentic it's not the authentic style i think they would reject that word but but the swing is the style that you were mentioning before when you were quoting the piece the swing is the kind of what you make out of your condition. The living style. Yeah, the living style. Yeah. It's the hip out. You want to yeah. hear something fascinating? A quick, yeah, go, brief go. anecdote? I was having a conversation with this uh, black Pentecostal preacher named Eugene Rivers. Who has a, he has a reputation as being a conservative. He's, you know, I don't know that he's, his primary orientation is political that way, but he's got a 
ministers in Boston. He's famous for writing an essay, I think, uh, The Black Intellectual in the Age of Crack, something like that, where he, he sort of uh, goes after Cornell West, among some other people. But uh, he's a real, very uh, brilliant, interesting guy. And, and I was making the case to him for Murray as the basis of a, you know, so sort of in the context of a conversation about this personality crisis America is going through at the moment where we're vacillating between these extremes of a kind of MAGA-style hysterical patriotism on the one hand, hysterical cartoonish Americanness on the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, people for whom the mere suggestion of any kind of American identity is anathema and who for whom America is so irredeemably tainted by its past that even kind of mild patriotism of, of any form is basically, you know, I don't know, fascism, whatever. Um, and I was making the case for him to him for why I thought, you know, Murray was like, we have the example here in front of us. Oh yeah. He, um, he has sections that my students were objecting to or very uncomfortable with where he says, you didn't have anything better going on in Africa than the American ideal that you were brought into, <laughs> right? you know? And that shocked them, yeah, actually, because yeah. yeah, you yeah. don't hear somebody say something like that now. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say one more thing, sure, why sure. he's relevant to the debate now. Sorry, Phil. Um, before I forget, the why he's relevant to the debate now, I think, uh, is we're talking a lot about meritocracy and about excellence. And there, there's a kind of um, aspect of this conversation that is anti-excellence, actually, uh, anti-achievement. And I was shocked to see, you know, there was a... A month or two ago, maybe a bit more, you know, um, Carranza, the, yeah, 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 yeah. the superintendent of New York City Public Schools, um, had an anti-white supremacy thinking uh, kind of uh, seminar for all the teachers where one of the one of the elements was like, you know, like emphasis on the written word is white supremacy culture or punctuality, ob objectivity, punctuality, yeah. you know, like things like yes. this. Um, this would appall Albert Murray. You know, the mm -hmm. idea that, like, you're not supposed to actually um, go he out would, and He would compete. think it was racist. He would think it's absolutely racist. Right. And he would and think this, it's he, internalized white supremacy. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is called, this is this is called elitism now, you yeah. know? This right. is against the kind of um, goals of part of the super progressive woke left. I think that would, that, in opposition to that, Murray seems conservative, but he would actually, in another era... Not but if you read him blasting the Moynihan report, and yeah, if absolutely. you actually That's the read opposite Murray, of conservative. there's nothing conservative. Just to finish that He spends that 20 anecdote. pages on the Moynihan yeah, report. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, and he just destroys Talking it. about a family doesn't need to be, have right. a mother and a father. And, you know, I right. mean, the, 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 and rejecting kind of uh, bourgeois respectability absolutely, norms. Absolutely opposed to it. I'll just leave this, though. So Rivers, I make the case for like Murray is like we have our example. And I just thought this was fascinating. Rivers – Pentecostal minister, he's like, nah, 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 there's nothing. They they were fakers, Murray and Ellison, because they abandoned the black church tradition. And <laughs> so I just thought that like Rivers is not a uh, uh, rigidly fundamentalist thinker or something like that. But it was – I realized that for him, the black church was what blues was for mm – -hmm. Like Murray, like anybody who strays too far from that, however much they might seem insightful, is only ever capable of cleverness. It's like <laughs> uh -huh. it can never, you know what I mean? And, yeah, uh, just stuck with me. Well, so th this, you know, you're talking about, you know, the emphasis on like the tradition, and this is, I think, 
he's very interested in freedom, but it's not sort of utterly pure, unbounded right. freedom. And he he has he's got like contempt for uh, Sartre. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> at one point, uh, he's you know he's like. Um, uh, so, some of these writings were even worse than Sartre's fiction, you know, which is going pretty far. And there's another bit where, like, it, there's a letters between Ellison and um, uh, uh, Albert Murray about uh, uh, Richard Wright, uh, mm-hmm. who was spending time in France, and like, oh yeah, he's like he's, he's yeah. scathing about this. And and Ellison is like, you know, he went to France when you know, like, uh, uh, God, what is it? It's like it, it, Mose. He brings in yeah, Mose, and like the blues would would teach Sartre things would like make his yeah. like you know yeah. roll back and then and then uh, would Murray, make cockeyed Sartre yeah cockeyed Sartre and then Murray responds like yeah like you know you spend too much time farting around with those French guys you, you can lose your hat ass and gas mask um, <laughs> and the it 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 has to be grounded in a tradition and one of the things that he says you know so there's that bit where you were talking about uh, how this, the the slaves, he, he writes, this is what he writes, um, even more significant that there were slaves who were living in the presence of more human freedom and individual opportunity than they or anybody else had ever seen before. That in Africa, cons- yeah. Yeah, that the conception of being a free man in America was infinitely richer than any notion of individuality in the Africa of that period goes without saying, right? He just, as like a blanket statement. This was shocking to your typical undergrad uh, I, at a liberal arts, small liberal right. arts college. Um, and... You know, it, it sort of reminds me of these debates when Gordon Wood put out The Radicalism of the American Revolution, which is a really interesting book about the sort of radical altering of a very hierarchical society um, after the revolution and how sort of he kind of conceives of the revolution not simply as a war and the achievement of a constitution but a reordering of social organizations that he tracks and then – there were these sort of debates from a lot of newer scholars who were like, you're putting this high premium on all these changes and conceptions of freedom, but you know, what about all these other sort of oppressed groups and the ways in which the revolution in some ways sort of you know, there's kind of like a birth of a lot more um intellectualized white supremacy after the revolution and all these other things. Um and he, you know, this sort of statement would seem to be very much on the Gordon Wood side of that debate. Like, we're not going to ignore what's happening, but this conception is important. And then he argues that, in fact, this conception of liberty gets its highest expression from black Americans. And he writes, the fugitive slave was culturally speaking certainly an American and a magnificent one at that. The Underground Railroad was not only an innovation, it was an extension of the American quest for democracy brought to its highest level of epic heroism. Nobody tried to sabotage the Mayflower. There was no bounty on the heads of its captain, crew, or voyagers as was the case with all conductors, station station masters, and passengers on the northbound freedom train. Given the differences in circumstances equipment and above all motives, the legendary exploits of white U.S. backwoodsmen, keelboatmen, and prairie schoonermen, for example, become relatively safe when one sets them beside the breathtaking escapes of the fugitive slave beating his way south to Florida, west to the Indians, and north to faraway Canada through swamp and town alike seeking freedom. Nobody was chasing Daniel Boone. Yeah. Let's dwell there for a second because, you know, Thomas, you just mentioned that to undergraduates, it's a, a real profound shock to hear Murray say that the opportunities for freedom or the the kind of 
arena of freedom far greater in America, even for enslaved Africans brought to America than it would have been in Africa, which is, I don't think that they're being, they're blanching unreasonable. You know, at first blush, it, it is a sort of shocking statement, Mm -hmm. right? But let's dwell there for a second because, you know, part of how the way Murray opens this essay is by talking about sort of the the way one finds the bottom of their own history. Yeah, he starts with mm-hmm. Thomas Mann. Yeah. Exactly. With the with the idea that any kind of uh, personal or collective mythos is arbitrarily uh, commenced. You know, you, yeah. you you can keep going back and back into this bottomless uh, and he says well on, of meaning and you could go you could go into this bottomless well of meaning and you could choose any fathom as the depth from which to to begin your ascent let's say mm-hmm. but the one he picks not arbitrarily is a specific year that comes up on the second or third page and it's a familiar year to uh, modern readers he writes thus though recognizing that the depths which after all are bottomless have not actually been plumbed there is no truly urgent reason to trace the origin of U.S. Negro style and manner any farther back in time than the arrival of a Dutch ship of war in Virginia with a cargo of 20 black captives for sale in 1619, mm-hmm. if indeed that far. So now I'm thinking now of this New York Times mm-hmm. 1619 project, and I'm thinking in particular of what I thought was um, – an essay with which I had many disagreements, but I thought was sort of rhetorically, essayistically, by far the most powerful. And it was a Hannah Jones lead essay for me. Well, there, there are resonances in that essay with this. That's what I want to talk about. Yeah. You know, not Except just sixteen nineteen. He would be much more unambiguously pro-American, I think. Absolutely. But let me just make this like more pointed because mm-hmm. when I read that essay. You want to describe what the essay is? Uh, the essay is the lead essay in the 1619 project, which is attempting to sort of reframe the consensus or baseline American historical narrative around the idea that uh, not only was slavery the original sin, let's say, but that American achievement is all based on uh, black forced labor and that – um, the country can't be rightly understood in any of its facets without understanding that it was all built uh, directly or indirectly and, and much of the project argues directly for that matter on uh, slavery. Um, so everything from the economic productivity, reliance on sugar uh, to uh, cultural patterns to traffic patterns, yeah. all those Excel this. spreadsheets. But my, um, my initial yeah. – reaction when I read the Jones essay in particular was the resonance with Murray made me well her father resonated her father had yeah. it begins Murray with her father who's a yeah. veteran hanging up his the flag, flag every day That's keeping, right. keeping it spotless yeah I thought it, I thought it was a powerful but lesson. her idea of the black American now not as the omni-American because right. there's a key distinction I think is worth probing. Her idea uh, is what Phil just read, which is one aspect of Murray, which is the black American as the highest, most American well, American. Most American say. and been here for probably about as long. Murray emphasizes that 
the black American actually, the European that he has in him tends to be wasp if he's a descendant of Southern slaves, which is, which is, he kind of makes the, he's like laughing a bit. That's a whiter white than, than most uh, immigrants uh, to the States right. subsequent right, right. have, you know, have a claim to. So for Jones, there's none of that sort of, even in Jones, I say you don't get that, you know, Murray. Even though her mother's side of the family is white. I didn't know that. Yeah, but okay, so that's interesting because you don't get much emphasis on that on the omniness on the on omniness the of her own. Right. It's exclusively. Yeah. You know, I didn't right. know yeah. that, and mm-hmm. I didn't certainly didn't get any of that from the essay. But in Murray, that's all important, and the sort of the highest Americanness of the Black American is not a function of the the blackness of their blackness. Exactly. This is Ellison too. This is an invisible man where you have in the paint factory. The paint factory. You know, the paint factory is a fundamental image for all of this. You know, the the whitest white is only made with a special drop of the darkest black. You know what made me think of that? Exact scene, the drop of black and the white paint, the blonde hair Mm -hmm. in your book, which we'll get to later, but uh, that you and your brother both have one <laughs> one stray, very strange yeah. very very blonde sprouting a metaphor yeah. out of yourself yeah, yeah. but the, the other thing with jones is that the thing like i'm sure she wouldn't see things this way but is there not something implicit in her idea of the black american yeah. as the highest american that there was a greater opportunity for freedom in America than for Africa. I mean, doesn't it require implicitly an assent to Murray's premise to some extent? I think that is a element of the piece that's a bit, uh, if not confused, ambiguous, uh, whether the American, I think the first line is something about the, what the first line of her essay is uh, the American ideal was false, but an ideal can't be false. It can only be not put into practice. Hmm. And so she said African-Americans, eventually the essay argues African-Americans made that ideal true Mm, or not false, but it can't actually be that way. The ideal isn't changed by how well it's put into practice. It's an ideal. Yeah, no, that's a good point. African-Americans often function as the conscience of this society and force white Americans to more fully, uh, Obama has made this point, Martin Luther King Jr. has made this point, force white Americans to fully, Baldwin has made this, live up to their professed ideals. But an ideal can't be false, or or, or, it Mm -hmm. it just is. Mm -hmm. So if you accept that, there's a way in which what the essay, one of the things the essay doesn't want to confront, but that's actually essential to the conclusion she wants to arrive at, it doesn't want to fully affirm the ideal. It, you know, it, it, it's too. There's, uh, there's a yeah. There's an, a discomfort with embracing America, uh, which Murray had no problem doing. Even as an ideal, yeah, yeah. Even as an ideal, I mean, Murray spends a lot of time talking about Harriet Tubman being mm. the the kind of ideal American, right. the best American. Right. Um, yeah, he's, I mean, these little portraits of like Harriet Tubman, Douglas, and Douglas, uh, yeah. and compared like, to Lincoln, comparing them to Lincoln. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But that I, I mean, that essay does open a space for a kind of robust American patriotism that incorporates a lot of the kind of critiques of the way that the history has been effaced, right? Well, I, I think there's been a pretty robust critique. Uh, I mean, the idea, part mm-hmm. of what bothered me about the 1619 project was a. Uh, I love the New York Times Magazine yeah. and, and, and work there. I'm somewhat constricted and Understood. So w- let's move on from this. I'll just finish that thought so it doesn't seem like we're censoring ourselves. But I was just going to say part of what 
bothered me about the framing of it was just that it seemed to vacillate between very, very bold claims on the one hand and then much more sort of moderate defenses when presented with the, the kind of boldness of some of those claims. But anyway. I, I th- no, but I'll just say yeah, one thing. Yeah, sure. I, I think what Murray would say there is simply that uh, you, any attempt to reduce something as complex uh, – complexity was one of his favorite words as was, as was Ellison's. Uh, any attempt to reduce something so complex as, as American society, certainly over the course of several hundred years, to one event, one institution, one uh, relationship of dominion of one group over another misses more than it can ever possibly explain. Right. Any attempt to, to reduce our present situation to certain historical factors, I think he would think necessarily falls short because it's, again, arbitrarily – deciding where something starts and ignoring a lot of other things that preceded it and ignoring the you know the the agency will style aesthetics idiom of the of the present day that 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 instill the current moment with meaning too should we should we talk about what he says about the blues ah, i'll talk about anything you want man <laughs> um so he he has this um point that he makes later in the essay where he talks about art as a conception of life and the blues as this form that is perfectly suited to democracy. Um, And he says, you know, early on, he says, the function of education in the United States is to develop citizens who are fully oriented to cultural diversity and not hung up on race. And later in the essay, especially with the Moynihan report stuff, it's clear that that education is for him not simply in the classroom right. because he's skeptical of some of the things that are learned in the classroom, but rather that the um, uh, you know, it's sort of like uh, Ralph Ellison saying like, you know, Sartre could learn some things from, from the blues mm-hmm. and would make his head swim. Um, that this particular uh, style is, it's a method of revolt. It's a method, method of survival. It's a way of taking the sort of raw chaos of human experience and imbuing it with with meaning and verve and form yeah and form um and so uh that tradition is kind of uh you know the sort of specific thing that he's going to zero in on is one aspect of 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 what black americans sort of what constitutes black american culture and as right. a piece, not as a sort of isolate thing within this broader American experience, right. but sort of as the fundamental Americanness yeah, of Black of American culture, American and to reduce experience. Black American identity only to oppression, I think right. he thinks is the worst insult. And and whether it's coming from sort of the left or the right, whether exactly. it's used as a kind of, you know, we're going to describe our oppression and focus on it as a means of creating a sort of political claim. He's he, you know, he he is a he rips into um, you know the idea that like this sort of like philanthropical model that is kind of patronizing and insists on seeing uh, Black Americans as children, and he thinks that it sort of reifies the um, the depression uh, 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 oppression of of uh, Black Americans. It's, like, it's part of what defies the sort of easy political categorization of exactly. Murray that people find useful, but Murray. 
also thinks that, you know, in a way very much sort of consistent with some modern thinking, also thinks that white supremacy is an incredibly powerful oh, he yeah. force he, he, he in America. He uses that term frequently constantly. throughout this book. Yeah. And he talks about the folklore. Uh, folklore of white supremacy. White exactly. supremacy. And part of what he's saying, the difference is that Murray thinks that that white supremacy is not – he doesn't see it as like unidirectional and mm-hmm. this purely kind of vertical hierarchical force. He sees the absorption of white supremacy in the image of black suffering as the highest depiction or the purest and truest deplic- depiction of the black American experience. So you know, he's also against like the pathologization uh, – of of the kind of black American experience. And he sees that as a reflection, you know, basically like the white supremacist doctrine wants to show black people as debased and so is invested in That's absolutely right. pathologizing and, it. And many uh, he, he talks about strands a, of the left are too, for different reasons. That's but right. it amounts to some of the same thing. Well he talks specifically about a sort of more left wing um so-called community development program called HARU. Um, yeah. The operating monograph is a monument to the social science nonsense and nonsensibility. It demonstrates again that other Americans, including most Americans, American social scientists, don't mind a bit what unfounded conclusions you draw about U.S. Negroes or how flimsy and questionable your statistics or how wild your conjectures so long as they reflect degradation. Exactly. And I was thinking of um, – Simone de Beauvoir in The Ethics of Ambiguity uh, talks about all oppressive regimes become stronger through the the degradation of the oppressed. And she talks about like going through Algeria and seeing these like tribes that were sort of so miserable that it it, like you would sort of draw back and not have room for remorse. And then she writes, yeah, with all this sordid resignation, there were the children who played and laughed, and their smile exposed the lie of the oppressors. It was an appeal and a promise. It projected a future before the child. If in all oppressed countries a child's face is so moving, it's not that the child is more moving or that it has more of a right to happiness than others. It is that he is the living affirmation of human transcendence. He is on the watch. He is an eager hand held out to the world. He is hope, a project. The trick of tyrants is to enclose a man in the imminence of his facticity and to try to forget that man is always, as Heidegger puts it, infinitely more than what he would be if he were reduced to being what he is. Man is a being of the distances, a movement toward the future, a project. The tyrant asserts himself as a transcendence. He considers others as pure imminences. He thus arrogates to himself the right to treat them like cattle. And that sort of like social science, I will reduce you to what you are. And when I'm reducing you, I'm only going to focus on these kind of metrics of degradation. Absolutely. This is why Ralph Ellison, I mean, in Shadow and Act, at some point he says, a pie chart can't tell me what it is to be black. And I think that's just (laughs) absolutely succinct and to the point. I mean, and Murray is absolutely right. You can say anything about black people so long as it proves that they're uh, unequal to whites or increasingly Asians. I mean, you can say that math is... uh, is inherently something blacks can't do. You can say that uh, standardized tests are racist. You can say anything. You can say that the written word uh, disfavors blacks. Uh, Anything so long as it comes out that black people um, can't cut it, aren't aren't up to snuff. So uh, Coleman Hughes, the uh, young writer, um, 
rely informed by reliable sources online. He may be a KKK member or a, some sort of he's SoundCloud a, he, rapper he's or a, something. He's a Columbia uh, undergrad. Is that what he brilliant is? kid, philosophy uh, yeah. major. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, we can talk more about Hughes in a second, but he's got a, an essay in, uh, I believe it's in Quillette, um, from a few weeks ago about black progress. And the point that he's making in the essay, the argument essentially is that if you take – he uh, posits a, a division between a gap-focused idea of progress and a historical-focused idea of progress. This sort of relates right. to what you're the saying. The gap lens. Yeah, the, the gap lens and I forget what he calls the other one. Uh, past lens maybe? Past lens, Past yeah. lens, yeah. And so essentially he's saying that if you focus exclusively on white-black wealth gaps, then you can frame – uh, the last 30 years is one of regression in black socioeconomic status in America. But if you focus on what he calls the past lens, which is how is the kind of, you know, and now we're dipping into mm-hmm. some of the social science that maybe Murray would have rejected. But yeah, but he says if you measure blacks against where they were 30 years ago, they've made immense progress. What's interesting about that is he makes the point that um, – only blacks are ever contrasted to another group. Whites are never contrasted to another group. They're only contrasted to how they used to be in the past. Right. Blacks are always held up against this uh, arbitrary standard of how whites are doing. Right. I would say I don't think it's an arbitrary standard, right? There's a history. <laughs> no, but the thing, is that, the thing is that other groups, Asians are never – Asians – other groups are never just like – pinned to this other group's uh, measure of success. And he says, he makes a kind of, you know, it's a point I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, He says that if all life just keeps getting better and blacks are actually living wonderful lives, but whites are slightly better, is, can anybody really argue in good faith that that's problematic? So long as blacks are thriving and flourishing, if whites are also, or even slightly more. Maybe it's even more complex than that. Maybe like if you, the different groups and different that, localities. I would think that inequality is always going to be a problem, right? So, like, it doesn't it doesn't do me any good when I think about sort of inequality in the present society to be like, well, like, you know, life is better than it was a hundred years ago, right? That's, he's making a point that I think can that be because, interpreted because that way. These because these things get bound up with not just sort of material. Um belongings but also respect and social status you can't sort of you can't just look at say do they have more stuff are they kind of well he's saying incarceration in, rates are really right. plummeting for them right. and things these types of measures as yeah. well teen teen, teen pregnancy, uh, pregnancy. Right. i should just clarify i was being perhaps overly flippant and my characterization of Coleman, who's been um, smeared by all sorts of oh, yeah, he, second-rate characters. I, you know, there are things he's written that I've disagreed with. There are things he's written. I thought the first piece he ever wrote but for Quillette was phenomenal. He's always a very serious thinker, uh, writing in good faith. I mean, Man, he's a prodigy. Yeah, not only is he always a serious thinker, the idea that this obviously brilliant guy is somehow uh, – amateurish in his thinking or unaccomplished reflects the paucity of his critics. I can look at people I disagree with strongly. I know what clear thinking is. Absolutely. I know what analytic rigor is. And I know what somebody with an impressive sort of native intellect is. The idea that you're going to look at this kid with his, I call him a kid because he's 
you know, 24. If he's 23, that. I think. Yeah, 23. It's appalling. He, he, he did Juilliard first. He yeah, took it's a few appalling. Uh, 23 years old. But with a background, like people are focusing on his SoundCloud thing. Kid played with the Mingus Big Band for years. <laughs> Do you know what kind of, seriously, the aesthetic sophistication? You think they let anybody play with the Mingus Big Band? If his politics were slightly different, there'd be 50 laudatory oh, yeah. profiles on oh, yeah. it. It's so the paucity of kind of like the lack of, of willingness to recognize um, – Anything that strays from well, well, a certain well, set of it's it, it's men. there's a desire to not actually engage the argument at all to not give it breathing room right so well, this really was the case when he d- g- gave his testimony on, on reparations which was actually a kind of nuanced very view. moderate it very wasn't nuanced. really it wasn't really the exact opposite of Coates's testimony but it was opposed as though you know he got booed I think in in there when he yeah I heard him say that on uh, the Fifth Column podcast that he got booed there yeah yeah I mean it, it's I mean, part of my issue with it is like it's just boring, right? Like to, you know, to see somebody put forward an argument and then have it be responded to with um, – <laughs> actually, Zadie Smith had a, did a good job of sort of diagnosing this in a recent essay where she talked about like how the responses to like, you know, one of her pieces is going to be either like – I just can't with Zadie Smith or this Zadie Smith is everything. Yeah. And she's like, these are worthless. You're not even using your own words right. at this point. Um, uh, I just can't with Coleman Hughes is basically, that was like the but internet's you know, reaction. It's like, that was the platform. It's not, it's not that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not that there weren't smart responses to him, but like you had to like filter through the avalanche of, of the responses that were yeah. essentially like the, the equivalent of just, or the actual like somebody doing like an eye roll emoji and that right. was all you got. And um, I mean, Coleman Hughes is not necessarily some somebody um, that I'm always going to uh, agree with. But like if I want to engage with this idea, I want to see like a, a robust response and not people treating him with contempt or suggesting that he's only there because he's like – uh, yeah, I, sort of token. I found um, that the hardest to believe critique. People really don't understand that. Like uh, to your point, Jake. I mean, anybody who steps outside of the prefix menu of opinions you're supposed to have uh, on the left, uh, they have a higher degree of difficulty if they're a minority writer. <laughs> if, if you're a black writer and you're writing something like Coleman Hughes, you don't just get showered with opportunities. It's kind of <laughs> you're cutting off what kind of awards you can get. You're, of you're taking real risks. <laughs> Uh, of course, and that's obvious. It's, it's the idea that he looked. just has a career because he says uh, these things, it, it's literally the inverse of that. Yeah, and the hysterical nature in which that charge is leveled is testament to the fact that it's preposterous on its face. The, yeah. the, the fact that people are telling you that this 24-year-old who played in the Mingus Big Band. 23. 23-year-old, sorry, who played in the Mingus Big Band and has written a series of, you know, some of the most important essays in American, like the most talked about and, and quite serious. You know, I thought his piece about, actually his big piece about uh, economic disparities. The yeah, the wealth gap I thought was the weakest of his pieces. His first piece, the sort of Kanye West piece about the distance, the gap between median black opinion on any number of issues and the kind of represented that black was opinion was brilliant, was waiting for somebody to say it. And you had to have the guts to say it. You had to have the insight, of course, but you also had to have the guts and the 
the thing that tells you how false and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to go on about this for too long, but I feel it's worth enunciating, you know, in public in this forum because the whole sort of censure of Hughes relies on the idea. It relies on a number of very obvious falsehoods. It relies on the idea that he's unimpressive and unaccomplished. That's preposterous. Like I can read people I disagree with vehemently disagree with. I know what, like, you know, we know what smarts looks like. We know what a clear original line of thinking looks like. You can disagree with it. You can point out the flaws in it, but you also know what an original voice and sensibility looks like. And you know what it looks like when somebody's being showered with praise, uh, opprobrium. These are, this is obvious to people. And Hughes has been, uh, you know, vehemently denounced by a fairly well-organized, fairly uniform block of people who um, make a certain line of argument against him that they all seem to quite impressively echo. You know, they all make the same argument, um, often in sequence, like people lining up to, to you know, uh, to manifest in, in the morning for um, first formation in the army. They're like all in order reporting to the, the first sergeant, all saying the same thing one after the other. Anyway, um, I just uh, I think it's ridiculous. So there you go. <laughs> what do you think Murray would think of, it, of Hughes? I think that Murray would have strenuous objections to Hughes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth pointing out, if you listen to Glenn Lowry, another guy who people – I love Glenn. Yeah. Glenn's been on a roll lately, man. Like Glenn's, uh, but listen to Glenn's interview with Coleman Hughes. He grills him. Because Glenn Lowry is one of the strongest devil's advocates you'll ever engage on a podcast. Unbelievable. I've been on with him too. I mean, Glenn can play the other side of the argument better than most people who really believe that. But the yeah. whole idea is that somebody like Glenn and Coleman are effectively interchangeable and that they're sort of performing. For Glenn, John McWhorter, right. Coleman Hughes, myself, and Camille did a podcast. Mm -hmm. and Fantastic. I listen. None of that. us fully agreed on, I don't think, anything, but right. except for the fact that I don't think any of us identified ourselves as conservatives. I think maybe only, only – Maybe there was one conservative in there. I'm not sure even who that would be. It might well, be John. Like or, 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 he's libertarian. But, might, but jo John is not. John does not identify himself as a conservative. No, 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 neither does Glenn. Glenn, Glenn used Glenn's to be, but he's forth. Uh, and Coleman doesn't identify himself right. as a conservative. Uh, and there's a big diversity of opinion of all of us who thought we are on the left. But none of us is at home on the left uh, as black writers or thinkers. But there's a very we're all kind of like right. treated. Um, with suspicion. And yet the most serious critique of Coleman's thinking that I've encountered is from Lowry. Ostensibly somebody – Taking without, it seriously. Taking it seriously and, and pointing out what I thought were some, you know, flaws in his thinking that, you know, I, I don't know. I, look, I don't know what I don't know some of the time. Sometimes I act like I know what I don't know. But, you know, I'm willing to listen to two people talk about something and try and learn something and – Glenn pointed out certain things. I thought, yeah, this is this is worth taking seriously. But it was a strenuous, substantive objection. Some of those objections along what you would call sort of conventionally liberal lines, actually. You know? Yeah, which which is what I want, right? I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about this. We, we can cut it out of the podcast if you want. But um, 
like there's that extremely negative review of you uh, and, and your memoir that began – that barely talked about your memoir at all and began – Talked a lot about my your first, first memoir, yeah. which is about 10 years ago. This Skin point. tone, I right. think, came up um, more than it once. It begins with two paragraphs that are just claiming that you're incoherent. And then it says like if you want like an incoherent writer, you read Barry Weiss. On gender. David Brooks. David Brooks on and, and class then you. and me on race. And – um. I thought it was kind of telling that he begins his essay – he begins his attack with not with a real argument but with grouping you with a, a class of enemies, right? It's just like a signal to readers. Yeah, and then claiming that you're incoherent, which is sort of giving him a pass to not actually engage with your argument. And um, the the sort of – you know, a lot of people loved it because he had a lot of sort of colorful, you know, contemptuous – Absolutely. I mean, the whole thing was dripping in contempt. But if you've read the book – even if you do disagree with it, and a, you know, I mentioned to you uh, over DM, like I am much more sympathetic to some types of tribalism mm-hmm. and much more opposed to existentialism than you. Um, so I don't land in the same place that you do. But if you've read your book and you think this is a clear argument, it is aware of the sort of discourse around these things, takes the other arguments seriously, includes them into the book – um, and then comes out in a clearly articulated position, right? To read somebody who begins by just saying this person is incoherent, full stop, you either have to think one of two things. Either this reviewer is too stupid to follow a clear argument or they're so ideological. And he's not stupid. He's not stupid. They're so ideological that as far as me looking for intelligent thoughts about your work, he's indistinguishable from somebody who's too stupid to read a clear argument. And I so, mean, that's absolutely right. I, uh, and so that he's useless to me even if I disagree with you. Right. Um, in, but what he is useful for is a kind of – Rallying uh, the other side. You know, I, we've talked to this about like Habermas and like communicative discourse, how like there's sort of norms underlying discourse where if I'm making arguments against you um, – we both have sort of like these sort of submerged commitments to rationality uh, and truth and these other kind of things that that uh, Habermas says are like integral to democracy and that you can see operative in any kind of discussion. But I actually think that he's missing an entirely different type of political discussion, which is not about um, not about argument. But about sort of the sort of employment of charged symbols that demarcate friends from enemies and excite people who sort of are on your side, and I think you see this. Um, this is also the Twitter Twitterification of of critical writing. I think right. you know where you just yeah, make assertions. So. You don't have to uh, develop points, engage uh, counter arguments. You just make assertions, and people like and retweet because it sums up what they have to say. It's like right. what Zadie Smith said: you don't actually have to think through your own language. It's yeah. just you receive. But uh, an editor told me, and this was, this was you know, what made a lot of sense to me, um, because he, he says I'm incoherent, but he says I'm emblematic of kind of a, a larger trend in, in, in writing now, which is, um, which is kind of falling in the center and not really having a position. And essentially what that is, the editor told me, is like, you're saying to not be an ideologue is to be incoherent. Right. You know, you don't have any uh, positive uh, connotations for trying to have, you know, what, nuanced positions. It, this is it, not a time to be nuanced. For, for citing writers who have different positions on the distribution of wealth? Yeah. If that, but not, it, not even about wealth. Face, <laughs> yeah, on its face. If you, if you cite somebody who has a different opinion about the distribution of wealth, 
then that makes your argument incoherent is the worst argument that I've seen written down and published in a while. Um, <laughs> Look, the unfortunate thing is that Haslett, the author, uh, is a good writer and he demeans himself. Uh, I thought it, like he demeaned himself in that piece, which was so obviously performative, so shallow. You know, as much as it's ideological, it's just social – you know, it's just like – a series of kind of strung together appeals to a built-in amen chorus that's standing by to attack the right people and just looking for sort of a series of bon mots that they're not quite clever enough to generate on their own. So here he comes in tweetable form and and he produces it. And, you know, in the same way um, that I think it's pathetic that people can't recognize that Coleman, whatever else you want to say about him, even if you think he's evil or hideous is obviously not, you know, very, very smart. The fact, the fact that people withhold even acknowledging that it says it all. Yes, it does. And I'll tell you this, because, you know, I said this to one of my editors not too long ago. All I care about is my family and writing, basically. Like, <laughs> that's it. And it, by which I meant, um, don't mess with my writing and like, don't push too hard on certain things. <laughs> like, that's all I care about. My family and my writing, just leave me alone. And I'm not saying I'm not, necessarily something to be proud of but it means that i know good writing i know this about myself the idea that somebody with a degree of aesthetic sophistication which i think the critic clearly has pretended that your very very well-written book uh was most that what was most salient about it was its weak fairly incoherent connection to this sort of built-in political discourse around these totemic figures. Yeah, okay, compare anything to Barry Weiss and you know what the response is going to be. I mean, how... Because she's someone that people don't engage with anymore either. I mean, it's just... She's, she's a, a symbol. She's become a symbol. Totemic. Yeah. She's a symbol and she is... The, the symbol that she is, is she's a, a border fence, Right? Like right. You whip Barry Weiss and you show other people the limits of acceptable discourse. She's the easiest possible thing to whip. It's just a deep, deep shallowness, a rejection of complexity, of proteanness, of everything that, that Murray prized. Yeah. Um, and it makes all of us dumber and weaker and more vulnerable and more susceptible to the predations of really sinister characters when we treat ourselves like we are these uh, dim-witted uh, and, and servile beings, which I think this kind of public discourse does. It, it reduces all of us, in my opinion. So I want to say – one thing, because we haven't really gotten to the blues, but we're going to need to move on to your book, and I'm pretty sure we're over an hour point at this We're, we're coming up on yeah. um, an hour, and we, I, I, we didn't have a problem engaging it for a no, little time, actually. <laughs> um, he, he, towards the end of the, 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 the essay, he says, The creation of an art style is, as most anthropologists would no, no doubt agree, a major cultural achievement. In fact, it is perhaps the highest as well as the most comprehensive fulfillment of culture for an art style, after all, reflects nothing so much as the ultimate synthesis and refinement of a lifestyle. Art is by definition a process of stylization. What it stylizes is experience. And so all the different arts, what they're producing is a conception of the essential nature and purpose of human existence itself. And 
you know, he, he sort of goes again against the social scientists who uh, say that the concept of survival technique has somehow become confused with technology and restricted to matters of food, clothing, and shelter. Mm-hmm. Human survival, however, involves much more than biological prolongation. The human organism must be nourished and secured against destruction, to be sure, but what makes man human is style. All human effort beyond the lowest level of the struggle for animal subsistence is motivated by the need to live in style. It's a great line from Anatole Breuard about um, another one of my who has something to do with the subject. Has has a bit to do with all this in his uh, in his own memoir about uh, life is like uh, the 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 highest form of living. Basically, is style that you live your style and. I think about like Broyard and Murray and I was thinking about why and Ellison and why and you know, Broyard is another one. Of my and Broyard was writers. passing. Uh, Broyard was passing um, in the most interesting possible ways. You know, I think Broyard was one of the – Broyard had a moment I should say or a series of – like a series of distinct moments where he just produced some of the most luminous prose of the 20th century, starting very early, actually, with the first essay he ever got published in Partisan Review about his father, uh, what the orthoscope said, which is an incredible essay about his black father, who he never acknowledged was black, but a uh, uh, Creole father. Um, why, why these things? Why these things? Like, why Ellison, Murray, Breuer? I'm a Jewish kid from a very mixed community in Brooklyn. I grew up um, grew up around a lot of different people around, not even primarily, but around black Americans, probably more uh, West Indian friends when I was growing up. But I mix everybody, you know, Jews, Italians, um, Puerto Ricans, whatever, everybody, so-called black people, so-called white people. Half-Finns? <laughs> no half-Finns. <laughs> though uh, Swedes in, uh, you know, and, and – Northern Europeans in Bay Ridge, mm-hmm. which used to be Swedes in Bay Ridge. Yeah, yeah. Bay Ridge what? used to be Bay Ridge used to be It'd be Swedish. The sort of Northern European. There are a couple wow. of delis left that preserve their wow. disgusting culinary <laughs> traditions. Uh, <laughs> wonderful people. <laughs> Jellied meats are not my thing personally, but uh, uh, but wh- why did these things mean so much to me? And it's. Uh, I was obsessed with race on some level, even though, you know, I wasn't like a white kid trying to act black. I wasn't, I didn't have the sort of liberal preoccupations with, I wasn't racked by guilt or anything like that, but I was I think, obsessed with race. And I think that's part of being yeah. American. It's also part of being that. from Brooklyn, part of being from New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, New York, uh, Murray would agree with the statement. I don't remember where I heard it, but the the, the, the quintessential New Yorker is, Part Jewish, part Puerto Rican, and part African American. That's right. Yeah. That's that, right. That is the New York. No matter and, right. and a bit wasp. No, no matter what, that is the culture that you grew up in in New York. And so, but it's taken me a long time to pick that apart. Why? But there was a particular, you know, I was going to say Black American, but I don't know where Broyard fits into that. But a Series of to writers. my eye, it's hard to understand how he could fully pass. Yeah, You'd yeah, have to yeah, be yeah. willfully That's not right. noticing certain features. That's right. But there were a whole lot of people who did that in that age. But I think it's part of being American is like confronting this obsession with race and confronting it in order to transcend it. Not everybody wants to transcend it, but there is – it's such a powerful metaphor. It's such a powerful – 
way of organizing reality and mm -hmm. identity alongside the ways in which it produces this suffering reality. And it's so sort of tantalizing what it offers. And you get into this in your book, but, you know, it had a, I realize only sort of indirectly by evidence of what I was drawn to, Invisible Man and uh, Broyard and, and Murray, I realize only sort of indirectly how much of a pull it exerted on me in ways mm -hmm. that I don't know, crouch for that matter, ways that I don't know I, I was fully in touch with until many years after the fact. Well, this is, this is like Frederick Douglass gave this speech where he sort of posited like every nation has like a sort of purpose, right? And our grand purpose because of our composite population and our ideals is to sort of show the unit unit and dignity of the human family, right? And whatever else other nations may have been great and grand, our greatness and grandeur will be found in the faithful application of the principle of perfect civil equality of the people of all races and all creeds and to men of no creeds. And like this sort of idea that the essential purpose of – of America is to have this cultural diversity existing in a state of equality. Can I say one more thing and then we can move on? Yeah. And also, um, if you, if this is like a problem because the New York times thing, let me know. We'll just cut it later. But, uh, I'm going to praise Jones now for a second. So, you know, the, the, I thought one of the strongest parts of the, the Jones essay in the 1619 project was – this is something sort of not fully dealt with in its complexity is the way in which – I thought she dealt with this very well. The way in which the American ideal produces an even more insidious and sinister and oppressive ideological racism yep. because in order for the two to coexist, in order to have the the ideal of liberty and of inborn human dignity coexist with plantation slavery, it produces uh, a need for for perversity, right? This is the Fitzhugh and, and Calhoun come after the revolution. Those mm -hmm. thinkers yeah. don't come before. But this is also the fundamental – one of the fundamental points in another – unbelievably neglected uh, book, Racecraft, mm -hmm. uh, The Source of American Inequality by Barbara and Karen Fields, um, which is why you have racism here that doesn't even make sense in Europe where these things originated. I mean, you have you have to so dehumanize a group of people for it to be making sense to even the most casual observer that they're completely denied all of the aspects of this country's liberty that it's been founded on. It, it takes, it requires something beyond, uh, um, it yeah, it, requ it requires, th this, the contradiction is such, it's so extraordinary that it requires um, an ideology that's powerful enough to excuse denying liberty in right. a country founded on liberty. Yeah, and so even if you want to try and fully embrace the American ideal, you know, you have to be wary of uh, kind of triumphalism um, or of people who are too dismissive of, let's say, you know, the the kind of too too eager to historicize away the the particular and peculiar uh, abhorrentness of American slavery. It, it you know, and, and this has become particularly more common. The sort of resurgent new right that Thomas has written uh, about. Um, in the European mold that is 
I think, become much more influential in America. Um, but, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, slavery was a, it's not a peculiar institution. It existed all over the way. That's, you know, true so far as it goes. But there was a particular and peculiar character to American slavery that reflected not only the scale, but also the need to incorporate it into this land of uh, bounty and, and of liberty. And Which produces a very complex and richly articulated mythology of white supremacy, as, as Albert Murray uh, would put it. Hmm. Yeah. All right. This uh, – we would strongly recommend people read The Omni-Americans. It is great. But – Read the whole book. Yeah. Start with – the title essay is also called The Omni-Americans, but we, – we, we always do this thing like what would, what would happen if we took this seriously? Um, <laughs> as a manifesto? Yeah. Well, what would happen if you tried to live by The Omni-Americans – you know, what would be one result of that, do you think? The line that really sticks out to me in the book is, but any fool can see that the that the white people aren't white and the black people aren't black. Uh, if I tried to actually live by the insights of the Omni-Americans, I would try to do what I think I'm attempting in my book, which is to step outside of um, the all-American skin game, what Crouch called the all-American skin game. Uh, Not an easy thing to do, but um, uh, a noble effort. I would say that, um, you know, I've been thinking about this in alongside a, an essay by Ralph Ellison called The the Novels of Function of American mm -hmm. Democracy. And I think what he makes very, very clear is this um, – way in which the the production of art and the means by which you go about it and the kind of tradition that you incorporate as you attempt to produce that is um, inherently political, philosophical, though not in a sort of simple, reductive way. Um, and so um, that sort of sensibility that he brings to thinking about literature and music is, I think, um, and the way that it incorporates ideas about what a human being is, what an American is, what America's relationship to black identity is, is something that if you excise from um, that sensibility from your work um, means that you're sort of being less honest and useful and ethical. Yeah. Those are both good answers. I don't know that I have a good answer. I'm going to rely on cliche here. Yeah. but Listen to more Duke Ellington. <laughs> Listen. Uh, again, like all, all of this stuff, Duke Ellington. You got, right? you got, you got any favorite Duke Ellington? Well, well I mean, our, I, I, our yeah, we podcast with opens with a snippet from Such Sweet Thunder. She's so great. Which is Ellington's Shakespearean suites, which I learned about at 16 from Stanley Crouch. <laughs> um it's, you know, I'm stuck there. I'm still where I was and, you know, fuller and fuller. But but in a sense, it doesn't move. It's the – you just – you realize the depth of the these things that um, never go away. Such Sweet Thunder, we used to have a quote that we started uh, the podcast with, which came from the uh, Afro-Eurasian Eclipse, um, which is also 
Ellington. What, what would I say? What Ellington would I say to listen to? Uh, that's difficult. Maybe just because we use it in the uh, Afro-Eurasian Eclipse is like big, grand, symphonic. Um, and Such Sweet Thunder is um, maybe too sort of narrative and doesn't swing in – it does swing. Don't get me wrong, but let me think about that. Uh, <laughs> All, right. All right, I'll come back to it. It's tough, but you know, Murray wrote um, Coleman Hawkins. Um, no, I'm sorry, not Coleman Hawkins. Jesus, Count Basie's mm-hmm. autobiography, a Red Bank, New Jersey native. Mm-hmm. Um, not for nothing. We should also shout out that he founded. He was one of the founders of jazz at Lincoln Center. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pleasure to present to you the one and only Duke Ellington. All right, so moving on. So, Thomas, the the art we're going to discuss today is your new memoir, um, which I, I have a lot to say about, and I highly recommend readers pick up. And uh, I would recommend it to them not as a book of uh, uh, salutary social science race advice, but as a deeply humanistic uh literary work in the best sense about the it is beautifully written yeah sentence by sentence it is fantastic yeah and even if you, you even if you want to uh deplore uh mr chatterton williams politics you discredit yourself um if you don't recognize the quality of the writing so um i'll start with that but why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about the book and how you came to write it. Sure. Um, so to, to talk about the book, I mean, I find this book is probably the culmination in some ways of of, of most of my 38 years of, of living at this point. Um, I grew up uh, with a black father who's old enough to be my grandfather from the segregated South, from, from Longview in Galveston, Texas, born in 1937, well before civil rights. And I, my mother is white, uh, evangelical Protestant uh, from a family that uh, certainly was not um, imagining that they would have uh, black grandchildren, black relatives brought in. Um, and as a result, I was raised, as a result of my father's kind of escape from the conditions of the South that he abhorred, and my mother's uh, escape from the racism of her family. My family, my parents continually moved east until... My brother and I were, um, or I was born in New Jersey. My brother was born slightly ahead of that. Anyway, we were raised in New Jersey in this kind of small nuclear family where uh, my father's a sociologist by training, and we were living on the white side of a pretty segregated town. And I was taught that black and white were not necessarily real, but they were, but but they, but racism was real, and the social construct of race meant something, and that this was a binary, and that uh, if you have a drop of black blood, you're black. And uh, I really believed this. My dad could make jokes with my mother that like she was just light-skinned or she had black consciousness. And I was always aware, I think, more than some of my friends were who didn't question race at all. I was always aware that race was very important, but that it was also there was something that never quite added up about it. I, I was aware of that. But when I looked in the mirror, I always, and I still do, 
I see not a biracial person. I never felt comfortable with this term. I see a black person, or I, 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 I fundamentally have. Um, and it wasn't until I was already in my early 30s, married to a white French woman who has blonde hair and blue eyes like my mother does, but who it hadn't struck me until the baby was born would probably bear a very white-looking child <laughs> when we got down to it. I just assumed that my children would be mixed and therefore they would be black uh, and that it wouldn't be a further complication. And the birth of my daughter in 2013, my daughter Marlo, with her extremely light skin, with her super blonde hair that was already already present at the hospital and with her blue eyes, it just confronted me with what I guess I'll call the fiction of race in a way that my own mixedness, my own interracial family um, didn't. So this book, the, the writing of this book, I had to really reconsider some positions I had taken even publicly recently. So uh, in 2012, I published an op-ed in the New York Times kind of glibly saying that my kids will be black. It was called as black as we wish to be, arguing that my kids would be black because blackness is a a discipline and a choice and a, you know, and a drop of black blood makes somebody black. And then when, I, when this child was there and actually a real presence and not an abstract idea, I realized that I just saw the limitations of the one-drop rule and I began to interrogate where the idea of um, one drop makes a person black comes from. It comes from the plantation. It comes from slave logic. It comes from places that I don't know necessarily get us to where we want to be. So, so, so her birth really started me down this path. I wrote an essay called Black and Blue and Blonde that was um, published in the Virginia Quarterly Review in 2015. And from that essay, this book came about. But even the difference between that essay and where I end up in the book, uh, that essay is very uh, inquisitive. I'm wondering what it means to have um, like some kind of Oedipus slept with my white mom and killed my black dad. What, what it does it mean to change the race of your family? of a line of people. Um, by the time I end up at the end of this book, I've been living with my daughter for a while. Um, she's now just about to be six. And I've, I've had a really powerful encounter that kind of changed me. I'm profiling the artist, Adrian Piper, artist and philosopher, Adrian mm. Piper for the New York times magazine. And it was in spending months with her and talking with her that I finally, for the first time at the very end of writing this book, began to allow myself to consider what I thought was a very forbidden thought, which was that I don't have to be guilty about certain things and that I can actually have the language that she used herself of, of retiring from race. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that the book uh, makes clear is how, how American that way of thinking was, uh, you know, the, the one drop rule, is not purely a function of slavery. There are other slave societies, other slave economies. Brazil is a obvious example. It has the opposite of the one job rule. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I mean, could you have arrived in this? Had your French wife come to America, I wonder, you know, would could this have, uh, could you have had the same sort of revelation? I, I It feels to me like part of... Um, the process of this book is also being in France where you're, you know, often th people think you're Arab when they see you. And then as soon as I open my mouth, they realize I'm American and my fundamental identity in France is American, right. which is extraordinary, li extraordinarily liberating. Well, there's a, there's a very funny moment in the book where I think you're like getting a kebab or something. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the guy tries to speak to you in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, no, 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 I'm, uh, I'm not Arab. Yeah. You know, he says, I say, I'm, he says, where are you from? I say, I'm from America. And he says, but why didn't your parents teach you your language? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? Yeah. And, and, and you're like, no, no, I'm black. And he goes, no, you're not black. Michael Jackson is Michael black. Jordan is oh, black. Sorry. Michael Jordan <laughs> is black. Jack. Michael Jordan is black. <laughs> Michael Jackson is another problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that was like the first time that I, I that was when I was like right after I graduated undergrad and I was living in France for a year teaching English and it was the first time that the way I saw myself didn't match uh, what was reflected back by the society I was living in and it was kind of a shock uh, because in America being a very light skinned what people call biracial black men doesn't really trip up whites or blacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, people basically accept that, you know, um, there's nuances to it, but white people didn't really like think I was white and black people are accustomed to accepting people who look all types of ways into the black umbrella. So it wasn't until I got to France that people were like, why does that make you black? Or how right. would your kids possibly be black? And, and I realized they have no conception of the one drop rule over there. Mm-hmm. Because they never had slaves living within their society, they weren't. Th- th- slavery was always something away. And in the French colonies in the West Indies and stuff, where there was slavery in Martinique, for example, you have thirty-six um, descriptions going all the way down to what my kids would be, which is called chape, which is uh, slang for échappé, which is literally escaped. It's mm. the very, very mm. faintest amount of black-looking characteristics you can have. Yeah. So. You know, what's interesting is so the book has this sort of long prologue that starts with the birth of your daughter and sort of your realization that this girl with blonde hair could not really – won't be perceived as black, right? And so there's this sort of category that you've been taught to – is sort of incredibly important to identity and which is a binary that all of a sudden – your your child doesn't seem like she's going to fit into. And what does that mean for for who you are and how you think about those identities? And you sort of go through these different like ways of thinking about race as, you know, a matter of culture. You know, you're, you're, I think your father says to you at one point, like, son, don't lose yourself. Yeah. But before he said that to me or in the book before he says that to me, when he first meets my daughter, he said something that really helped me a lot. I said, well, I was a little bit like, it was the first time he was meeting her, and I was like, she's not, she's not so black-looking or something like this. And he says, oh, son, she's just a Palomino, I, you know, <laughs> the, which is like you know, a term <laughs> from the South that comes from horse breeding, which is right. like uh, a, a light white and tan-colored horse. But he was like basically on the segregated side of town at my segregated black high school. He said I had some classmates that were colored just this way, mm-hmm. so don't even trip. Yeah, right. it's a memorable exchange. Yeah. It's like the, it, it really helped me. Right. And but that your father also had already had had this inborn sense of like there are all of these kinds of black that are still on the black side of town though. And right. like blonde hair and blue eyes is almost This is part of his he has a Murray esque I mean, I think this is a part of Murray too, because Murray was raised by a man who could pass for white but didn't. It, it wasn't his biological father, but his his well, mother. I didn't know he yeah. could pass for white. Yeah, yeah. His, his stepfather could pass for white, but How was black down there in Alabama. Wow. My wow. father grew up around blacks like this too. My dad doesn't believe um, 
that race is biologically significant or real. Yeah, yeah. He really rejects that. Um, and he's, 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 he's aware of the kind of, I think a lot of black people are, you know, Murray emphasizes that there's no more physically diverse group of people than, yeah. than blacks. And it's true. Black people look like everything. And this is part of the omni From Mariah Carey to Michael yeah. Jordan. Yeah. yeah, and this is part of the omni My dad, it, it, he really didn't struggle with having um, grandchildren who are blonde-haired, blue-eyed, not because he um, is the kind of image of the Brazilian woman in the, in the redemption of Ham in this painting, where he, he's not this figure that's, like, happy to have his right. family whitened. He just doesn't put – he really doesn't believe – that um, the color of your skin matters. Right. He doesn't see the whitening as a deep lacking. No. Right. And I don't either, actually, because what I try to emphasize in the book, I, I want to always be clear about this. A lot of people think that this is stepping out of blackness. This is stepping out of race. I don't believe that my kids are white, and I don't want them to be white. I want them to subvert, subvert whiteness, and I want them to have an achieved perspective that rejects either of these categories or anything in between, because we're all yeah. in between. Yeah, I want to... Phil, you got some. Go, go, go. No, no, I think uh, th- this is uh, exactly um, what I want to talk to you about, not only because I think that, you know, this is one of the kind of mischaracterizations of the argument that you're making, but that process, that there are there are sort of multiple possibilities for thinking about the subversion of racial categories. And if you take that in the abstract, it seems to be like something that everybody, most everybody sort of right thinking people agree is a good thing, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're not trying to reify these kind of essentialist categories. People pretend to they believe pre- that's they true. They pay lip service to they that. They pay lip service to that. But I think notionally, nominally, they it's important to them. Now, mm-hmm. meanwhile, their conduct continually sort of reinscribes and, mm-hmm. and reifies this essential The racecraft. Every day we remake yeah. the ideology of racecraft. And also, especially when you step outside. So like when Zadie Smith took a opinion on that um, painting, right? Uh, there's oh, like Dana a, Schutz's painting. There's uh, like a painting. Open casket. Till that uh, this uh, British artist said should be destroyed Black. because it was a white person sort of just like uh, appropriating gaze, yeah. black pain and Zadie Smith wrote this very good sort of nuanced Getting essay. in and getting out. Yeah. Um, and one of the responses to it was like, don't be surprised if this essay is cited as a reason that biracial people need to take a backseat in the movement. Exactly. Even though the the woman, Hannah Black, who had originally written the letter asking the Whitney to remove and destroy the painting is biracial, half Russian Jewish. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, course, it, yeah, you, perfect, you, perfect. you always descend into absurdity. As soon as you start uh, policing racial boundaries or trying to make them meaningful. It's, it's alchemy. It's yeah. a form of power sorcery. It's a kind of alchemy. I saw um, Wes Yang uh, tweeted out something the other day. I saw where um, Asian Americans – by the way, it's actually something Wes wrote for Tablet. Asian American itself is a category that was invented in the 1970s by a group of right. – uh, Japanese American. It's, it's strange uh, how many disparate peoples you lump yeah. together under that banner. But why were they lumped together under that banner for a particular political purpose? Right. right? When I, like the, the sort of power sorcery of this is not a way of saying, oh, we're secretly being controlled by the, the racial minorities. It's that these things, the way they get constructed are to sort of conjure certain outcomes. Asian American was intended, put together to produce a certain outcome. But West tweeted out this thing. Yesterday, that Asian uh, Americans in New York in the 
context of this kind of ongoing conflict over the schools are now being described as white adjacent. White adjacent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've Which seen Which is a this. meaningless term. I mean, if you think totally, about it for a totally. second, what does that mean? It means that we have... We're no longer going to give them what other minorities are supposed to get. Yeah, and it means that whiteness is a mutable category. Which it is. Which, which of course which it, it is. It has been very mutable in this country. But that it's a mutable, mutable category that can't be eradicated. That's mm-hmm. the difference, right? The, right? the white adjacent on the one hand shows this sort of mutability that these things can all be, uh, you know, I've seen this in also in the context of how Jews and whiteness. Jews, Italians, Irish. Yeah. But it, it, on the one hand, it shows the sort of how flimsy the construction of it is. On the other hand, it shows that it's totally essential, that it has to be the enemy of whiteness are deeply invested in the maintenance of whiteness because it provides a kind of horizon, uh, a necessary fixed absolutist position in this kind of, you know, almost like Calvinist um, preordained sense as this morality play. Um, and, and, you know, this is, this is part of what's so interesting about the discussion of this. Like so many people will make this point about the pay lip service pay lip service to it but they don't really mean it but in in the desire to transcend this stuff there are different ways you could go i think about uh camille foster Mm -hmm. who race abolitionist is that what camille calls himself himself yeah yeah. yeah. you know i've had this argument with camille i'm not betraying any confidences here but you know part of what uh so camille would appear to be black but he's dark-skinned and yeah and he's descended from people who have been described as black is descended from people who've been described as black. But Camille's approach to this, I think, differs from yours. And I would have to confirm this uh, with him. But, you know, I don't think Camille is necessarily invested in his kid being black in the way that you're describing. I think that... I don't I don't know enough about how you... I don't, but I would say that I'm invested in my kids understanding what Murray would call the black cultural idiom. Okay. That's very alive in our house, but I don't think that there's anything essential about it. I don't think it's based in genes. Right. I don't think there's anything in the blood or skin about it. So this is, this leads me to a question actually that my wife uh, wanted me to ask you. Um, So, so my wife is uh, Colombian American. Mm -hmm. She's darker skin uh, than I do. You know, when when we, uh, you know, we're having kids, uh, you know, one of the questions for her was, you know, is my child going to look like me in terms of skin tone, right? And and there's an interesting point that you make in the book where you have people who are close to you who act like your daughter doesn't look like you at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can see yourself in her. You can see your father's features in her. Yeah, and, and both yet, of my kids now I can. Right. No one sees it. But, <laughs> but because they read as white, it's like that doesn't exist. Right. That's erased. Um, and it ignores the fact that some of my father's features yeah. don't come from Africa, right. even though he has dark skin. Some of my father's features are coming from Ireland. Right. And so, you know, she um, she asks, basically, does the rejection of race not seem like an attempt to avoid talking about whiteness and talking about the majority? I don't want my kids not to think of race because of whiteness, because I want them to know about whiteness and privilege, but to also be proud of what they inherit from, you know, from my side, right? And, I just... Yeah. What's that? So I just 
Yeah, <laughs> hi, Jess. Um, and she, her fear is that by not talking about race, you seem to be ignoring the white elephant in the room. Oh, I can assure you, we talk about race a lot. <laughs> that is something we probably talk about in my household more than in right. 99% of American households. Yeah. I think we talk about race. We, we don't, I would say as a family, we are pretty, um, on the same page here, we don't want to reproduce some of these ideas, mm-hmm. but we don't go about ignoring them the way that, like, uh, my kind of very glib uh, cousin in in the Valley of Los Angeles does, where we just say, "Oh, I don't see color." We don't say that. We we see these things, and we and we try to be as serious as possible about understanding what these things mean and how they're interpreted by others, and the negotiation of how we understand ourselves and how society. Um, uh, reflects back its understanding of us towards us, but but we don't want to engage with race uncritically. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the thing. I don't want my daughter. The tragedy for me would be if my daughter and now my son, who even looks whiter than her, um, were to walk out and just like unquestioningly like allow themselves to kind of um, just float along with whiteness, which I, would be a way of like, almost reifying race in the cr- uncritical absolutely adoption of that whiteness right, right? I, I need them to go out there and to subvert it and to have a have, have a highly critical understanding of i need them to go out there and say if 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 a person like me can be white then this then what does this mean what does whiteness mean if i'm white and i'm descended from slaves i'm 20 percent sub-saharan african on 23 and me what does whiteness mean for any of us for any of you yeah, um, and I think it was very important what you said before that you you're Jewish, but you've been constructed as white in the society only recently. Only recently, perhaps, but you say that you've been thinking a lot about race. Oh yeah, that is actually what has to happen. The, another mistake that some people get is that I'm that I don't think people need to think about race. White people need to think about race more. A lot of whites, especially of previous generations, were brought up to think of themselves as a kind of non-raced people, mm-hmm. kind of neutral neutral zone from which anything else is a deviation and and the, and the furthest deviation possible is black. But whites uh, have a racialized identity just like anybody else. White people need to understand that and then, I would argue, conscientiously begin to criticize, subvert, and reject it. But to give you an example of what I mean about only recently and about the constructed nature of race, um, when I was a kid, you know, like the West Indian kids on the school bus with me didn't think Jews were white. (laughs) And by that, they weren't doing me the honor of like exempting us from the privilege hierarchy. That's not what was meant by it. It was just a different category. Mm -hmm. It was so the sort of automatic, and I don't, I don't think the Puerto Rican kids or the white kids thought the Jews were white. Other The white kids, by the way, like, I, I don't know. Where Who I, were the white kids in Flatbush? So this is an interesting question. I was about to say, like, did the Italian kids and the Irish kids think of them, or uh, for that matter, um, some Polish kids? I'm mean, thinking. I went to um, junior high school at IS246. Now it has a. It used to be Huddy. Now it has a different name. I forget. But anyway, I know Strand and K, sort of a little bit deeper out in a Brooklyn, and um, the. There was, I mean, there were no wasps. Like, there was no mm-hmm. non-other identified white kids that I remember. There were Russian kids. It's like similar Russian. to how I grew up in New Jersey. The only wasp I knew was my mother. Yeah. So in some ways, 
other white kids found my family whiter than they felt them, their own Italian right. or Polish families to be, which yeah. was weird too. But but that would make perfect sense to Murray, actually. I think that the like Irish kids in particular were thought of as white in the sort of school hierarchy, even though they thought of themselves as Irish and Italian. There seemed to be like half of all um, kids were had an Irish parent and an Italian parent. <laughs> very, <laughs> um, but you fecund. know, until very recently, they were barred from country clubs, just like Jews were. Yeah, yeah. I just mean, th- but all of this being so contingent, like in this particular mm-hmm. milieu, I'm not saying like they are white in a fundamental. Just in this particular milieu of they were early nineties, they were perceived as white. They perceive themselves as white in certain contexts. But as Irish or Italian in other contexts, maybe, but none of this, uh, none of the stuff that applied then would necessarily apply now. And it was going back, I, you know, I haven't really interrogated sort of what formed those assumptions at the time. But, you know, one question I wanted to ask you is, do you think that your kids lose anything by not having a more conventional, even if also more fictive sense of blackness is there any trade-off involved you know is there like a cost in in certain ways that you see and think is worth it it's kind of a question that i can't answer because it's it's not going to happen where we live in paris uh they don't grow up around many black americans i have a handful of black american uh friends who live in paris but there's just not that many black americans um I don't necessarily think that it's the same thing to be African as to be black. So the the Africans or the the West Indians that would be in Paris, that's not the same thing. That's already very different than being a a black American. Uh, Certainly culturally it is. So they're not growing up around a blackness even the way that I did outside of their family. They are getting it through culture. They're getting it through books, I hope, Uh, even the children's stories. Some of them that we read, they're getting it through music. They're getting it through talking with me so they have lost if their mother was black they would have still lost that in the social milieu that we live in or they would that would have been um that would have been they, they would be removed from that cultural context uh so there's that um i hope that they're gaining something i hope that they're gaining i hope that whatever you you lose you get back it, it goes out the window and comes back with extra through the front door, you know, they're gaining and they have two nationalities. They're not, they don't have, they're not half French and half American. They're fully French, fully American. They have two languages. They have two, um, um, traditions to draw on. So I hope this is all enriching. And I think that this is kind of part of the book is that we should try to think not less about race, but more and more about what informs us and have like more serious and sophisticated understandings of who we are. Not these kind of simplistic labels that are that are that are so abstract as to as to sand down so much of what's specific about us. Right, though. So part of this, and I think that's related to Jake's question, is like the black community as such. So it's created out of plantation logic and racism and all these other things. But what the black community represents for Albert Albert Murray is not that. It's not the degradation. That That is sort of, you know, the kind of uh, Gregory Pardla talks about the middle passage as like the Big Bang kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but there is a real community that is formed that is incredibly rich, incredibly American, incredibly vital. Um, right, that's a real community that right. exists in and a place. A, there's a bit in your book where you talk about being in, in Baltimore, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you're like campaigning for Barack Obama. We're canvassing, yeah. Right, right. Um, and you are presented with these images of um, poor, seemingly uneducated black residents. Real destitution. Real destitution. Um, uh, in ways that maybe Albert Murray wouldn't wouldn't have liked that portrayal, right? Uh, in, in the way that it is in your book, because I think he would always suspect there's something more than what you're seeing. But... I'm sure there was resilience there, yeah. but uh, you can't. Uh, you but there's a moment you can't stomp the blues out of uh, completely out of some of these uh, right. realities. So you you are sort of considering like, do I have a relation to this right that I'm seeing? Uh, and you say, no, I shouldn't be more troubled than my compatriots just because of my ancestry. And because I'm canvassing with a, with a Jewish friend and with a German friend. With a German. Yeah. And you write, nor should Josh and I feel something fundamentally inaccessible to Kasparov, the German guy. Kasper, yeah. Uh, sorry, ca- oh, autocorrect typed it into Kasparov. <laughs> nor should I feel something fundamentally inaccessible to Kasper merely by virtue of our shared American citizenship. Both are manifestations of the kind of deeply flawed but all too human tribalism the democratic multicultural societies inevitably will have to discard if they are to fulfill their promise and potential. And this is where... I start to have a big disagreement. So I would say it's not that you should feel something inaccessible to Casper, right? But you certainly as American have a different relationship to that than he would as a German. I think that community and a cultural tradition, it's not just sort of like aspects of culture on a table that you can enjoy, but like part of being in a community is that community has some degree of ownership over you, right? And so in the book, um, uh, you sort of are kind of searching for freedom, right? Yeah, the uh, the word ownership is interesting to me. Yeah, Um, whereas for me, like, I would say, of course, you should feel something different. What is that? uh, Either white or black poverty in American life, you should feel that you have a relation to it, right? I feel like I have a relation very deeply in in France when I encounter poverty. I don't feel like an interloper. I feel uh, maybe this is what Piper was saying to me when we were having dinner in Berlin one night that it, and this gets back to your question before, which I don't know if I answered. I'm not sure. I'm. I don't know what it would be if I never left home. You know, yeah. if, if, if some. If I, but being outside and then coming back in, I feel. I feel a connection to French poverty or poverty, and when I pass it in Bristol or London or Naples, that no longer feels so foreign to me, and the poverty in Baltimore doesn't feel. Uh, more or less foreign or native to me anymore. Uh, I don't. I, that, I don't mean that to be like an easy answer, mm-hmm. but I can feel some of the most foreign feelings I have now when I go back to New Jersey, for example. Yeah. You know, um, and I guess in some ways I think that 
where you and I might disagree is uh, I'm from a family, first of all. I, don't, I didn't have to move away for this. I'm from a family that so believes in kind of individualism. Yes. And that already before we got into the type of children my brother and I have and what they look like had already really committed to cutting itself off of collectives. My parents did that. So I don't have the sense of a collective having ownership over me. I do have a sense of allegiance and I've long had a sense of guilt to the past or a sense of there were people who struggled who came before me that I owe something to, a right. debt. Um, but I don't have a living community that I feel um, tied to. So it's interesting. I mean, if there's been a theme that Phil and I have kind of returned to here, wasn't something we set out to do, um, but it's been the the tension or perhaps the uh, relation, if it's not always, sometimes it's reinforcing between, let's say, patriotism and cosmopolitanism right. or between particularism and universalism. We're sort of constantly circling around that, which is very much, I think, in the air at the moment. Um, and I think, you know, Murray has an, a sort of answer to that. And when I have had some of these conversations with Camille in the past, who are told to read the Omni Americans? Actually, <laughs> I wonder if he has. Um, but you know, Camille's a very persuasive. I think I also told him to read the Omni Americans, <laughs> so he got that from two <laughs> directions. Camille, it's about time. Uh, <laughs> but you know, he's very persuasive, and he's um, very, you know, sort of committed to I think a kind of real principled individualism. I think more than I am. Even. Clearly. Yeah. And that yeah, was, because that I'm was not the, a libertarian. Right, right, right. And that was the distinction I was trying to get yeah. at before. You know, I think Camille is like totally allergic to all sort right. of attempts at enforcing uh, group identity or, cons uh, you know, conscribing is, conscribing is not the word I'm trying to, you know what I'm talking Conscripting. About. Conscripting. Ah, conscripting or circumscribing. I think I combined <laughs> those two. His individualism in any way is allergic to that. But, you know, Murray's answer is this kind of Americanness, right, that you can. Murray and Ellison were very suspicious of people like Baldwin and Wright who went to live in Europe. Right. They actually, Ralph Ellison spent two years in Rome. Right. And he said, I don't need it at all anymore. Right. <laughs> you know, he came back home. He said, home is where it's at. Spend too much time farting around with those French guys. <laughs> That's what I thought you meant mask. when you said the mm -hmm. crouch gave yeah. you a funny mm -hmm. look when could you Could be that too. Yeah, I that's mean, what I immediately I, th I think thought. it was also because I went and had kids and I couldn't read. I didn't have, I I didn't have the ability to read his manuscript. Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't see your gas mask or your hat. <laughs> no. <laughs> so. But I do think that what I'm saying, Phil, and I have a lot of respect for your position and, uh, and a lot of my friends would fall in line with what you're saying too. Uh, but I don't think you have to move abroad for this. I, th I hope what this book is doing is I went abroad and had some kind of thoughts, but I think that you can stay at home and kind of be open to committing yourself to having to achieve more of an individual um, identity that you create through what actually is important and meaningful to you as opposed to this kind of ready-made, not saying that this is how your identity is constructed, but many people kind of, it's hard to go out and like decide what you actually care about and like what actually resonates with you, what your identity is. I mean, Anthony Appiah had a nice op-ed uh, a week or so ago about what does it mean to read about someone like me? For me, before I ever thought about transcending race, I knew that the the the, the author who described feelings I've had the best was Dostoevsky. And I've yeah. never at that point been in Russia. 
uh, certainly not in that epic. Um, what does it mean to, who are you actually? Think this through on your own as opposed to just absorbing and reproducing things like that take on a life of their own, but actually that we, through our daily lives and lives in the present, continually remake and reproduce, often unthinkingly, you know? I, so I don't think those necessarily need to be at odds, but I would say, like, you know, we're going to raise our kids with a attachment to Columbia. Um, and, you know, when they think about that nation, it will be in a different way from other places. And that is because, you know, we have ties and loyalties to that nation, to that community. And also, you know, my wife has a different, um, and through her, me as well, like sensibility of moving through America. You know, we, when we go to La Nueva Bakery, right. Mm -hmm. And my extremely white looking older son, uh, asked for una media luna, por favor, right. Like, um, (laughs) (laughs) that is like kind of a wonderful thing. And we, uh, want to raise them to have specific and local attachments, not uncritical, Um, But I think that a critical part of what it is to be a human is not just about freedom. It's also about existing in relation to family, community, broader culture, and nation. Right. What you're talking about, though, and with Latinos is a bit different than with blacks because you're talking about linguistic community. You're talking about a nation that you know people came from. Mm -hmm. You're talking about identity that's not really getting into essences. Uh, when we talk about Hispanics, I mean, Hispanic is a linguistic uh, mm-hmm. label that has been treated and conflated with a racial identity in yeah. America. You know, it, it's tricky. These things are always tricky. What you're talking about passing on um, is I, not so different than what I would like yeah. um, to pass on to my kids, too. I think. Right. I, you know? I think that the the sort of social... You know, to zoom out from the family for a second, the 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 reason this is important in a maybe a social context is because while there can be something exhilarating and liberating in a kind of freely determined, sovereignly determined, um, individually constructed identity, um, that after several generations, you arrive at a sort of hyper-individualism that sometimes then leads directly back into the most, uh, the worst forms of collectivism. You know, that it, that the, a hyper-individualism attenuates people's resistance to cultish uh, collectives and actually makes them vulnerable to some of the sort of crude tribalism um, that we're seeing now (laughs) and that it might not, it might not manifest like for a few generations and that those, you know, you might have, uh, you know, the America in the roaring twenties, Paris on the left bank and sort of this, this is this question of modernism that I'm preoccupied with and why I think Now you've got me scared that my grandkids are going to be Front National voters. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, some weird stuff going on over the pond. But I I think like that general dynamic is very real, you know? But what you're talking about in wanting to transmit a 
I think you called it a black cultural identity, something like that. That's in America, you know, not just for your family, but for Americans. So perhaps the great struggle for us now. And we had uh, Michael Brendan Doherty who wrote a memoir sort of parallel to yours in some ways about having a kid and his Irishness. Mm -hmm. We had him on and some of these same questions. The thing I didn't push him on hard enough that I wish I had is what some of the national attachments he was describing mean in an American context. I don't always push myself hard enough on it. You know, I'm, as a Jew, I have this deep, deep sense of intergenerational transmission of narrative. This is what it means yes. to be a Jew. Yes. Generation after generation, you come to the Seder, right? It's right. the Passover Seder. It comes from the verb to order. And you tell the same story about the Exodus every year, mm-hmm. every generation. Because and if you don't, there's nothing essential that's that's right. You have to have these things because there is nothing in your bones that makes you. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And part of that seder is what's called the four questions, and the, these four different uh, sort of archetypal children asking a question about what the story means. And one of the chi- children, who's called the wicked child, um, he posits his question as you. Why did you do these things? Why you know? excluding himself from the group and you're supposed to respond in the telling of this story quite harshly. And and if you're an outsider, even if you're a little kid reading this, or maybe if you're just a more sort of secular liberal Jews coming to a Seder, you're like sort of cruel to this kid. (laughs) There's a, there's a quote that's not attributed to one person, but it's a kind of Jewish quote that uh, I, I have in a footnote in the book that I've thought about a lot because I think, it's uh, interesting from a black perspective, too. I often think about par- what's similar between the communities. Uh, a Jew is someone whose grandchildren are right, Jewish. Right, yeah. right, right, right. I thought that's a fascinating. You know? I had never seen that, actually, before. And I, yeah. Explain what you mean by that. I don't know if it's I've clear out of context. I've come to know what that means now yeah. uh, uh, directly. Yeah. I don't think that you just are... And I even noticed this a bit with you, which I like. I, I don't think you just are what your grandparents and parents made you into. I believe yes. that the next generations turn around and reflect back on you. You're speaking beautiful Spanish. This is something that you might speak with your children. You know, <laughs> I am not speaking beautiful. Spanish. <laughs> I am trying. <laughs> but you know, you there's now something that's gotten yes. into you. I see that my brother. I mean, he is not a polyglot, cosmopolitan right. guy in many ways, but he, Russianness is turning back into yeah. him through his daughter, who is, you know, my brother's yeah, uh, yeah. The traditions partner is Russian. They, they do. It's not a one linear, linear process. So that's the fear. And, and, and many groups always knew that humans are very, very, very uh, mutable things. You have to guard with all these practices mm-hmm. that, keep, that, that keep groups pure because humans just change quickly so th- this this gets to you know you, you quote Camus and real quick this podcast has a very strong opinion on this Camus <laughs> or Sartre uh, for me I'm Camus yes of course. <laughs> of course. all right we'll keep we going throw you out all right um, but I don't dislike Sartre <laughs> boo, boo. His, his politics are not my thing but yeah. he, th- this man was intelligent uh, he's, he's brilliant yeah, yeah, yeah. Cam- Camus the guy um you have this quote, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. I loved that when I was like a teenager. <laughs> now I'm like, 
No. Like, the way to deal with it is to build, like, communities, institutions, style, ritual, manner, custom, culture, art, and a structure of ideas that are geared towards broader freedom for all. That is the way to deal with an unjust world. And the issue that I've always had with a lot of existentialism is that it reduces you to this kind of flattened, isolate consciousness, right? And Ralph Ellison actually, I think, makes fun of this. Like, oh, he's end, very much into community. Yeah, yeah. at the end of the uh, paint factory, the, like, there's a bit <laughs> where, like, he's experiencing reality the way, I forget his name, but the main character of Sartre's Nausea does. Invisible. He's yeah. just the invisible man. Yeah. Right, but he's like... Oh, no, I'm sorry. The guy... Uh, he's, oh, in the, he's in the hospital at the paint Rocantin, factory. Rocantin? Yeah, Rocantin, yeah, where he, like, has this nausea of existence. Mm-hmm. But... Um, the reason that he's experiencing uh, reality the the way that that guy did is because he's in a machine that basically simulates him having a lobotomy, <laughs> which I think is a very funny joke. Um, uh, uh, and there's also, who am I, I asked myself. But it was like trying to identify one particular cell that coursed through the torpid veins of my body. Maybe I was just this blackness and bewilderment and pain. But that seemed less like a suitable answer than something I'd read somewhere. <laughs> I didn't realize that, Dig. I, okay. I had never picked up on that's that. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's – I thought that was right. I know he, there's parts of um, the scene there, – there are digs at right in the um, stuff with the communists at the yeah. end. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. That's, that's but Ellison started... Uh, he wrote a lovely... He, he started with uh, the new masses and yeah. coming up under... I mean, Yeah, he was the, a direct I just want to say, like, the, the, the abysmal treatment of Richard Wright by all of the people he Agreed. helped. Agreed. Is Agreed. Totally unfair. Yeah. Totally James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, all, all the, the guys he put on. But yeah. it's because he's the father. You yeah. know, yeah. It's, in a way, it's a testament to him. But since you mentioned that... Oh, then, uh, let, let me just... Sorry, yeah. I, I got to get through to, to what I was saying. So um, it's that like isolate sort of flattened consciousness um, at the moment of choosing. And yet, you know, when we talk about these sort of like ideals that we want to see reinstantiated in American political life, certainly, um, you know, why – why are some of these things less salient than maybe they seemed at other points or why do they seem under attack? It's not simply because the ideals have gone out of fashion but because we have a generation of people that have seen like an invasion of Iraq in which universal humanism and, and democracy was supposed to be a cure-all, ignoring cultural context uh, and actually sort of ended in like – I mean, won't yeah. over all the many uh, problems. And then, like, an economic system, which supposedly is predicated on individual consumer choice, but which is screwing people over. And so you have this political and economic system that seems unresponsive to democratic desire. And to to me, like, there's the kind of work of ideas, um, but the work of ideas can only be meaningful – if you are simultaneously building community and structures and you know institutions geared towards those ideas, and I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I wonder how we define if how we define community is often too restrictive and narrow, mm-hmm. and that we should we should really reimagine what we think of as community. Who belongs? How do we belong to each other? What do we have in common? What what separates our community from other communities? I think. We tend to just reproduce communities that were already established for reasons that don't necessarily make the same sense now yeah. as they may have or may have made bad sense even in the past, but we just keep rec- recreating them. For example, the white community. I don't think of 
um, that is a meaningful yeah. way of talking about America in 2019 is having a white community. What white community? Yeah. Real America. Real America. Right, you which know? is like this narrowly defined, uh, like, uh, rural... White. White. Uneducated, uh, typically. You know, non-college degree factory worker, right? Right. Um, it's a myth. Uh, right. it's a, yeah. That's are all just myths running into each other. I mean, but it is. Uh, no, no, is, I, of it, course. Yeah. yeah. I lived in Crown Heights for a while. There's a big mural on Nostrand Avenue. Crown Heights uh, is a neighborhood in Brooklyn known for having a large Hasidic community and also for having a large uh, Caribbean community. I lived on the Caribbean side of Crown Heights, and there's a big mural on, I think it's on Nostrand Avenue. It used to be there when I lived there. Bet it's still there. It's like, what is it? It's something the real black man, something like that. And basically, it's the like, real black man. Yeah, really? yeah, yeah. And, and basically, what it, it's this big sort of Garveyite. I, I don't remember it perfectly, but it's like a explicitly anti-black American mural. Wow, uh, which is like actually, if you grew up like in Flatbush, not that shocking. You know, <laughs> I encountered a lot of. Um, there's a lot of kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, West Indian chauvinism and then like a whole oh, hierarchy absolutely. among yeah, West Indian groups where oh, Jamaicans yeah, yeah. look down on everybody else. Absolutely. And, you know, Trinidadians look – everybody but, looks the, down on Haitians. Because like, you haven't even brought in Nigerians yeah. and other No, Africans, no, no. no. You know? Leaving them aside yeah. entirely. But this is a big mural, right? So you talk about like blackness as if it's this sort of – Monolith. Monolith. This and a – like this is a huge – anybody living in Brooklyn could have gone and seen this and like probably should have – disturbed your sense of the yeah. kind of simplicity of this stuff it's just up there and it's like mm -hmm. pretty wild actually but it doesn't really draw that much attention and um and you mentioned in the book how we use it as this all-encompassing signifier that is like notioning towards like manners and taste and socioeconomic status and all these other things and sort of creating this flattened context i remember having a discussion with a friend very smart it's a PhD, um, highly educated family, black, and we were talking about the the show The Orange is the New Black, mm -hmm. which I didn't care for because it like it just seemed to traffic traffic in like really lame, like really lame racial stereotypes, mm -hmm. right? You know, everything from like the the like white drug addict, abortion yeah. having extremely religious rural uneducated person to like i think my favorite was the the like the black like drug dealer who tells a girl like you need to get out of here you have a future right yeah. it's like yeah. really <laughs> the most cliched um and i was also like they'll have uh you know the characters like make fun of the, the white character but it's like in these ways that like highly educated white people like to make fun of themselves right and there's like a scene where they this woman, uh, one of the characters who's black, who's like from very poor background, is like making fun of the white character for listening to NPR. <laughs> and the person I'm talking to is like, "Yeah, but we'll, you know, like me and my like girlfriends will make those jokes about." Um, this is, a, but the person you're talking to is black. Yes, uh -huh. like me and my girlfriends will make those jokes about white people. And it's like, yeah, but you're not the same as this person. It's <laughs> <Right? laughs> like, of course you would, uh -huh. right? Like it's, but it it sort of, um, you know. There's this sort of idea that like that aspect is equal, equally accessible and that somebody has equal ownership to it 
because we use race as this sort of stand-in that actually sort of flattens this kind of diversity. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, my white family members, uh, many of them, not all of them, because in any white family, you're going to have some very successful people. <laughs> and some, you, you'll have some people that are just like mediocre as hell. On the mediocre side of my extended family, I mean... A lot of what people think of as white uh, in, in the kind of educated way would be very foreign to them, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's not their culture, and they kind of disdain it. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that there's a uniform white culture, there's a part of the, in the book where I, I, you know, I try to make sense of the fact that I was kind of the kid who was always, race was always around, and I was just always, like, amazed by race. Because, yeah. like, we were for reasons that my parents chose in some ways and for reasons of racism, my father supported the family by the time I was born uh, after his career working in anti-poverty programs. Uh, he supported the family by doing like, like students would come to the house and study with him for the SAT, GRE, LSAT, but mostly the SAT mm-hmm. and some coursework, AP stuff. And like um, he never left the house and my mother was, because they chose us, uh, she didn't work. She was a homemaker and we had a very small house, and it was mostly filled with books. We didn't even have a living room. The living room was turned into my dad's library. Um, and white kids who were working class would come over, and they'd have bigger houses than us, but they'd see how educated my dad was and be like, damn, like your dad's whiter than my dad. Yeah. And like tough black kids who were didn't have the books or necessarily like the even the financial security that we had, which was tenuous, would come by and like see my mother – like being cheerful and it was the cheerfulness and 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 her baking snacks or something like that yeah. like which was considered so crazy like your mom just has time to bake cookies and it was like damn y'all are rich <sighs> and it was like this this these these terms just slide like you're talking about like like my father's education races him or my mother's uh my mother's mannerisms uh class her right you know and and it's and it's really strange and it always confused me because i knew that the kid uh with no education his parents had two cars and you know and i knew that the black kid um had no idea what we were going through you know like it was it was very it was always kind of confusing to me how we don't really know how to talk about class or other things uh or, or or what um might be called uh, distinction or taste. You know, yeah. Bourdieu might call it distinction. We, we, we in America we tend to overly use racial terms for these things. In Europe, it's less so. Mm-hmm. We it's should say so. too. You know, we've been sort of focused on some of the fallacious critiques from the left, um, but we're at a moment now where you know there's a real concerted right wing effort to uh, to to what would you call it reify reinforce the right. reality of race and to try and reinsert or Absolutely. reinject uh, mm-hmm. a biological component hardcore sociobiological essentialism back into acceptable discourse and which which is also goes along with sort of black ticket to admission in republican politics you need to be de-raced. So there's, mm-hmm. a, there's an interesting book by Corey Fields called Black Elephants in the Room where he – it's like a <laughs> him looking at the diversity of black Republicans, mm-hmm. right? And he talks about two different organizations, the National Black Republican Association, which was like set up to be like this colorblind institution. It was supposed to like create a foothold in the African-American community but it imploded after Katrina because the institution was like you know trying to put out this just kind of blanket support 
And some of the members were like, this is a serious issue for the black community. And like half the board left and started this organization called Republicans for Black Empowerment. And so you have these two different institutions huh. of black Republicans, one of which is like race doesn't matter. We're colorblind, colorblind society. And basically what that means is kind of blanket support for Republican politics if you think of like uh, Candace uh, Owens. Sort of, right? And the other one is like black Republicans who are – their ideology, the way they present themselves is we care very deeply about the black community and we adopt this set of conservative policies because we feel that it is better for the black community. So if you think about that's the, way the case that, like, that Corey Robin makes for Clarence Thomas now. Right. That yeah. Corey Robin makes for Clarence Thomas or in his more conservative moments, Glenn Lowry, mm -hmm. it's always very clear that he – even if he's making what's would sort of fit with conservative talking points, that it is born out of a deep kind of like concern for the black community. Um, right. And what uh, Fields points out is that when Fox News is looking to elevate a black spokesperson, they go for the National Republic, Black Republican Association and not the Republicans for Black Empowerment. Why would that be? Because there's no challenge, right, mm -hmm. from the colorblind. And so what ends up happening is that um, if you are in an institution that is powerfully embedded in these kind of notions and sort of resurgent white politics, colorblindness as a ideal sometimes can be used to serve as just a deprioritizing of the needs of non-white communities. Absolutely. We'll say it again. You know that white supremacy and white nationalism is nowhere near, ranks nowhere near the top of the issues that are facing black America. And the reason that you are bringing them up in this room is because it is attempt to make the election all about race as the Democrats. Not in my case, Ms. Owens. I'm sorry. Please my, do not characterize my motive. I mean, this is actually something I think about a lot because the French uh, Republican ideal is set up <clears throat> along the notion of um, there's no such thing as race, right, there's right. no identities, so we just don't um, we don't recognize that. But that doesn't mean that there's not more Arabs and Africans in French jails. They're just all counted as Frenchmen. Right, right. You know, so colorblindness can actually reproduce a lot of inequality, even while professing to to be against that. Um, the American, I mean, both systems are very flawed. You know. Yeah. All right. Is it the opportune time for me to bring up my thought about Lil Wayne? Or should I, <laughs> should I hold Is there off? ever a time that's not a... The moment when I realized in a conscious way that I had lost touch, maybe with popular culture, but certainly with rap, which I had listened to a lot as a teenager, was when it wasn't just that Lil Wayne got big, right? Because like there had been rappers prior to him who got big who i was like i don't understand this you know i'm not feeling this whatever but i didn't get it you know i just and what i was going to say was it's not just that i didn't get it like people who were sort of whose tastes i respected lil wayne is good he has no quality control but he's good okay but well, you can I say just, the same I, I about imagine, prince i imagine yeah, you're but not I got listening prince. to lil baby and, and young thug right now you? no, no 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 okay uh the whole what was that cash money click yeah. i i didn't get but Lil Wayne in particular, I was like, I just don't understand what people are seeing here. Many years later, a few years ago, I've been thinking for a while about doing an essay about the Omni-Americans and been like on my mind for years, actually. And one of the things I thought about was sort of anchoring it around Lil Wayne as a protagonist in a way because 
at the same moment that the cultural appropriation rhetoric got most heated or started to get a real currency in the mainstream discourse and to become particularly rigid and strident and unthinking, there was this whole movement in hip hop that seemed totally uninterested in black authenticity that got no attention paid to it along those terms. So I didn't get Lil Wayne at the time. I still don't get his music. It's I What's about to happen is we see the dragon. I link with the dragon, and we gon' get ratchet. No need for imagining. This is what's happening. Second thing, second, I reckon immaculate. Sign about accurate. I know the strength that don't come without strategy. I know the sweet that don't come without cavities. I know the passages come with some traffic. I start from the basement, end up in the attic. And third thing, third, whoever coming out, they simply can't count. Let's get mathematic. I'm up in this school. I can't really listen to anything made past like 1996 personally, but, um, <laughs> but Kendrick, not Kendrick. No, it's not for me. But uh, that, That's crazy. Well, I just – I don't have very – I'm not like a sophisticated music listener. Right? I, I, I have just, respect for like the for the East Coast heads who are who are never going to listen. The only new rapper they could listen to is like Joel Ortiz because he I makes like 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 Joel action Ortiz. bronze because he just reproduced yeah, yeah, yeah. the 19, yeah, yeah. early 90s aesthetic <laughs> over that. and over and over again. <laughs> I remember thinking when Joel Ortiz came out, like, oh, I like this guy. He'll just never be <laughs> yeah, of the yeah, moment. Yeah, just, <laughs> Boom, bath till I die, sort of yeah. thing. But I um, respect it. I like you know, it. I liked. I, I thought Outcast was genius. I yeah. got Outcast. I thought the combination of the poet and that's the, pimp, the newest the whole thing, thing you can get to. That that's the newest thing I could get to was Outcast. <laughs> but um, but no, the Lil Wayne was this really interesting hybrid figure who was both serious and tragic and uh, a joker and an ironist. He's a, yeah, actually, he's the classic trickster. Yeah. He's a classic trickster. He's real, actually real G's very in silence smart. like lasagna. I, I, that's the sort of line that leaves me a little what? bit cold, frankly. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> Whoa. It takes a second. Yeah. I mean, that's a grenade but, uh, joke. They, I just yeah. was like, what? <laughs> That's ingenious. Oh, no, but I was thinking of Lil Wayne as this sort of omni-American character in a way. And, you he's know, got New some Orleans, conservatism in him too. He's got some conservatism, though his conservatism is mixed with an incredible bawdiness. You know, yeah. like a, a bluesy body. Oh, he's a, a blues A New blues Orleans man blues guy, yeah. in that there's the bawdiness, the earthiness, the refusal to countenance despair. Oh, yeah. Despite yeah. a hard life. Do you remember what he said about Black Lives Matter? He uh, said, my life matters. He, he said, that's, that's right. That's right. And, that's and what he said. That's what he said. He refused to sort of be drawn into the exchange, but it was also a real insistence on like, I'm not going to tap dance because you want me to, you expect He's me. He's actually pretty free. He's a free black person. He's into he skateboarding. whatever he wants to he do. He does whatever he, he got into skateboarding. He's like into the bad brains. He has all these different influences, all these different personas. He's this pure hybrid character. He's also a genuine child star. So he was making money since he was nine. That's or 10, right. You know? yeah. What not that? Yeah, young, he, started, he was like eleven or so when the when Juvenile had his. You know Interesting. What I mean? yeah. yeah, but I just I know he fell had a falling out with Birdman, right? Like they. Uh, yeah. He's, yeah. It's got record fact. label issues, but, right, right, right. But so, so uh, yeah, I think Wayne is a kind of omni American. He's a kind of omni American. But what I thought was the contrast was between Wayne as the omni American 
the refusal of the cultural appropriation crowd to deal with the reality of these cultural figures whose interests were so much broader and so much more promiscuous and so much more rebellious than a conversation about cultural appropriation would allow for. And if you look at, you know, one of the things that always sticks with me from Crouch is just this idea that, and Crouch gets it from Murray, is the idea that what makes for artistic genius is this particularly American artistic genius is the protean element. It's drawing everything in and then improvising something new from those right. conditions. Right, right, right. Exactly. You, you know the you know the bit from Elias, uh, Elliot, uh, Ellison about that, right? I do not. Oh, his National Book Award speech? Please. All right, I'm going to – it's going to take me a little – You are the only one in this room with <laughs> with a real link. That's awesome, actually. I didn't put that together. But, yeah, you you and Ellison both have NBAs. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like Ellison. You're just like yeah, Ralph Ellison. Just, you know, people can't tell me apart. <laughs> That's actually like a, a big identity uh, commonality. He got, he got the National Book Award for Invisible Man. 1953. I didn't so, know that. Saul Bella was on the jury, yeah. Brave words for a startling occasion. So he, he tells a story of, of – um, uh, I'm going to read the whole thing. This is great. It's a little long. And then I think maybe we need to like wrap. But um, we who struggle with form and with America should remember Idothea's advice to Menelaus where when in the Odyssey, he and his friends are seeking their way home. She tells him to seize her father Proteus and to hold him fast, however he may struggle and fight. He will to turn into all sorts of shapes to try you, she says, into all the creatures that live and move upon the earth and into water, into blazing fire. But you must hold him fast and press him all the harder when he is himself and questions you in the same shape that he was when you saw him in his bed. Let the old man go and then, sir, ask which god it is who is angry and how you shall make your way homewards over the fish-giving sea. And then Ellison says, for the novelist, Proteus stands for both America and the inheritance of illusion through which all men must fight to achieve reality. The offended God stands for our sins against those principles we all hold sacred. The way home we seek is that condition of man's being at home in the world, which is called love and which we term democracy. Our task then is always to challenge the apparent forms of reality, that is, the fixed manners and values of the few, and to struggle with it until it reveals its mad, very implicated chaos, its false faces, and on until it surrenders its insight, its truth. We are fortunate as American writers in that with our variety of racial and national traditions, idioms, and manners, we are yet one. On its profoundest level, American experience is of a whole. Its truth lies in its diversity and swiftness of change. Through forging forms of the novel worthy of it, we achieve not only the promise of our lives, but we anticipate the resolution of those world problems of humanity, which for a moment seem to those who are in awe of statistics completely insoluble. Hard to top that as a yeah, way to I end the program. I would not dare <laughs> say anything after that. <laughs> this has been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. And everybody go uh, go get a copy of Self-Portrait in Black and White by Thomas Chatterton Williams. It is a beautiful book. We uh, could have spent a lot more time talking about the, the bits on your, your grandfather are really powerful. There's a lot of stuff in here that uh, – we could have spent all day talking about, but uh, it's great, and I uh, really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. Despite your bad hip-hop opinion. <laughs> Thanks, Thomas. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>